Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, my neighbor. Good morning, July. Good morning. Music, talk, inspiration, in perspective. Your station. It's a refreshing lifestyle. City FM, ninety-seven point three.
7.3 City FM. We are also on YouTube. My name is Salom Adonu. You are specially, once again, welcome to this program. The show, as always, is live and interactive. You can join the discussion via our WhatsApp line 020-444-7033. 020-444-7033. Uh, this week, uh, quite an interesting one. Parliament, this fourth Republican Parliament, is marking 30 years of the reintroduction of the legislature. As you may be well aware, we had the first republic of Ghana, uh, but that was rudely interrupted by a military coup. Second republic, same. Third republic, same. The fourth republican era has been the longest so far, and this year, uh, parliament is marking 30 years since the reintroduction of the legislative arm of government. This has called into sharp focus the effectiveness of the legislature. And we will want to do some analysis today on the fourfold functions of the Parliament of Ghana or Parliaments generally and how our Parliament has fared the representational function, the deliberative function, uh, the control of the public test function, and then the oversight of the executive function. How has our Parliament fared in the light of everything in respect of these functions? Will you say that the political parties from which these members of parliament come have been, you know, overbearing on their work. Are they driven by partisan interest or the national interest? What do you think of the recent decision by the NDC party to their people in parliament, for example, not to approve of some uh, minister designates even before uh, they were heard or before they were vetted? Was that prejudicial to it? Is that how parliament should be controlled? It is not just the NDC. The MPP also did the same when the matter of Kenufurata came, the vote of censure or the motion for the vote of censure. That party directed its members not to partake in that. And we saw what happened. They walked out and the vote failed. So Kenufurata still remains minister. I want to look at all of that and see how effective our parliament has been. As always, your views are welcome. Also, this week it came to light that Ghana has, has been reeling under some very unfortunate circumstances, childhood vaccines have run out. And indeed, that poses a lot of danger for our kids and the immediate future. Why should the state sit for vaccines for children to run out, vaccines used for routine immunization of children from birth to about 18 months? Is it a case that our priorities are not in the right places? Why should vaccines run out? What is the point? Or why should we sit as a people for it 
uh, to, 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 to run out without any solution. Members of parliament, once again, have been there. They did not see it. It was when the graphic reported it that they quickly hauled or they quickly sent a letter to the Minister for Finance to appear before them. Is that how we should be running the state? Who is keeping a tap on some of these important things? Mind you, we have money for other things, like the building of the National Cathedral, like wanting to break the conference center and build it all over, etc. We want to look at all of these. Welcome to Incisive Analysis and Reverting Conversation. It's called The Big Issue on 97.3 City FM. Once again, my name is Salom Adunu. I'll return after this short break, introduce my guests, provide some updates, and then we'll get into the discussion. Once again, you're welcome. Why don't you get away from here? Hey, Charlie Taylor, why don't you get away from here? Hey, Charlie Taylor, why don't you get away from here? Oh, boy, when are you going to say goodbye? Oh, boy, when are you going to say goodbye? Hey, Robert Mugabe, don't you think it's time to say big issue your sh the show is your show it is live and interactive you can join the discussion via whatsapp number 020-444-7033 so this year marks 30 years of the inception of the fourth republic which saw the reintroduction of the legislature over a period of a decade of military rule on the 7th of january 1993 the first parliament of the fourth republic was instituted the first parliament with 200 seats which was seen to be one-sided due to the boycott by the MPP, has since gone through different phases. The eighth, the eighth Parliament, which is currently in session, has 275 seats, with no clear majority for the two main political parties, the NDC and MPP, for the very first time. Also unprecedented is having an opposition speaker. About, uh, but about after 30 years of witnessing different forms of parliamentary democracy, can we confidently say that the legislature has served as well. What has been the impact of the development on the development of the country? What kind of reforms are needed to make Parliament function to the benefit of its citizens? These and many more questions and matters will come up in today's discussion. But before then, we bring you excerpts of one of the functions of Parliament that is uh, controlling or keeping an oversight on the executive. In this case, the vetting of minister nominees, which took place this week. Uh, where some nominated person were, or persons were nominated to fill certain vacant ministerial positions, uh, the phase appointments committee earlier in the week. And some of the nominees include Katie Hammond and Embrane Champon. Let's look at what transpired uh, at the floor, on the floor, or in the committee, the appointments committee's hearing. The Appointments Committee of Parliament commenced the vetting of ministers appointed by President Ekufuado on Monday. Prior to the exercise, the minority group in Parliament addressed the media, announcing plans not to subscribe to a consensus approval of the nominees following a directive from the National Democratic Congress, NDC. We are taking part in the vetting processes so that at the very minimum, we can scrutinize the president's decision in bringing up these nominees. Again, the minority will not subscribe to a consensus vote at the level of the appointment committee. This will ensure that the matter is brought to the full house for a vote to be taken in secret. And I can assure you that we in the NDC 
stand united with our number of 136 for this expedition. We are calling on the following. One, immediate reduction in the numbers of ministers from the current level of 86 to 65. Two, the measure of the following ministries. For example, one, information and communications to be measured. Two, transport and railways to be measured. Chieftaincy and tourism, three. Four, sanitation and local government, among others. And then agric and fisheries, if possible. The immediate reduction in the number of political appointees at the office of the president, we also expect that to be done. But the majority in parliament described the move as politically immature. I don't know why they've come to sit here. When you have uh, a prejudiced mind, what are you coming to do? To ask questions to embarrass them, then go ahead and say that we have failed you. Is that what they are here to do? Well, I'm disappointed in the NDC. And if they really want to portray themselves as a party ready to take the reins of government, then they should behave well. What they are doing is way below board, and they are not demonstrated political maturity in their conduct. Now I ask, is Arthur Forsen and his team merely toothless? So they will sit in parliament and they will receive direct orders from uh, Mr. Fifi Kwete. At the beginning of the vetting, the minority members on the appointment committee expressed their displeasure with the minister-designate for trade and industry, Katie Hammond, over what they described as constant interjections. The assumption is that if you are as intelligent as you claim, you will be congressman. Mr. Chairman, you have a discussion with your colleague. That is unparliamentary. Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, the nominee must realize that he is before a serious committee. You can do whatever you do that's outside the sitting of the committee. When you come before the committee and you're on national television and everybody is viewing, you must take us serious. I'm asking a question. Let me finish asking the question. And if you have an answer, you can give your answer. If you tell the whole country that you've not been paying attention to the papers, that have been given to you. It's up to you. We are working on your elimination and you are interjecting. It's me. I'm supposed to regulate the meeting. If I'm failing, I'll take responsibility. Please proceed with your question. At a time of our country where people are in real difficulty making ends meet, I'm of, I'm of the view that. The nominee is very affable, and we all know. But when you are about to take, at least as the president wished, a position as a trade minister, you need to put up a posture that is more safe than being friendly to us. Katie Hammond at his vetting denied any wrongdoing in the oil drill ship saga. I have said I was three months in place as a deputy minister, you can well imagine that a matter of this magnitude would not be taken at my level. Every twist and turn I called back home, every twist and turn I was given my executive instruments, quote unquote, that is a documentation. Some of them signed by the then attorney general, some of them signed by the then chief executive of GMPC. No. So, now, yes. So, 
did you did you appear before the Apple Committee? Yes. Where, were you at that time? Yes. Accused of anything? What were you accused of? It doesn't. Mr. Chairman, the, 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 the report makes sure it, it is what I passed on to. That's why I was getting pretty upset, but I had to take back the word that I used. Nothing of what that my colleague uh, Suhini read is in that report. The report on the facts, straightforward, what I've told you, the basis, and the fact that it says I was at the take of affairs. During the vetting of the Minister Designate for Food and Agriculture, Barney Champon, the ranking member on the Food and Agriculture Committee of Parliament, Eric Opoku, revealed that the National food buffer stock had been staffed of funds since the year 2012, thereby hindering the delivery of its mandate. As we speak, since 2012, that an amount of 15 million Ghana cities was advanced to the national buffer stock to support their operations. Not a Peswa has been made available to them to enable them to play this critical role in our system. So Ghana, as we said, we do not have a cup of grains stored anywhere against emergencies. Honorable Minister, what do you think might be done immediately to assure Ghanaians that should in case of any emergency, the Ghana Bapastor will be ready to sustain us for at least some days to enable us find something else to do? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I was surprised myself when I found out that buffer stock is struggling um, to the extent that they had the opportunity to feed uh, uh, um, the free SHS program. They have supplied quite a lot, but they are not getting payments on time. So beyond their initial seed capital, they are struggling in other areas. This is something that I will uh, push to reverse immediately that I, I get in. I know that these are hard times, but I will make advocate strongly that as part of our national security, we need to ensure that buffer stock is positioned to deliver us when we get there. The nominee also denied authorizing an operation by some security personnel in the Ayawaso West Wogwan by-election in 2019. I not recommend my prosecution because there was no facts to support that. But they place an individual liability on me. And the individual liability is born out of the fact that, Mr. Chairman, and I read... The commission recommends that Mr. Brian Champon be reprimanded for his ultimate responsibility as minister in authorizing an operation of that character on the day of an election in a built-up area. Mr. Chairman, even in the unlikely event that I was a minister of state and authorized that operation, what I am being asked to be reprimanded for is not a crime. My interest is not the speculation. Did you authorize that operation? Mr. Chairman, I did not authorize that operation, and that is why it was easy for the white paper to say that they reject the recommendation because it is without basis. But I must add that the Ayawaso incident 
It is a blot on our democracy. All right, so you saw excerpts of what happened in Parliament earlier this week. You started with um, Dr. Atufosi, minority leader, and his colleagues addressing the press on what actually they were intending to do. We saw excerpts of the vetting itself, Katie Hammer responding to the thorny matter of the drill ship and how he was answering the questions and all of that. And then Brian Champon, a Greek minister designate, responding to some issues about shortage of food. And also, he used to be the Minister of State at the National Security Ministry, and he was in the thick of affairs, as the report said, in the matter of the Ayawaso West Wogon uh, by election violence. He was answering questions on all of that. So uh, that is uh, some update we, we've brought to you. I want to kickstart a discussion to help us do the discussion on the first part is uh, Mahama Yariga, who is MP for Boku Central, uh, Dr. Rashid Draman, Executive Director, Africa Center for Parliamentary uh, Affairs, ASEPA, Paul Abram Pamensa, who is a Senior Programs Officer with the CDD, uh, the Honorable Alex Ander Aban, who is a former Member of Parliament for Gumwa West, and also uh, Franklin Kujo, uh, President of Imani Africa. Gentlemen, you are welcome to the program. I start with uh, Dr. Rashid Draman, uh, the executive director of the Africa Center for Parliamentary Affairs, because he's done quite a bit in that arena, and, and he, he eats and drinks uh, uh, parliamentary affairs and, and, and matters uh, relating to strengthening parliament and all of that. Uh, Doc, you're welcome to the program. So, Thank you very yes, much. Very well. Uh, we're looking at uh, our parliament 30 years on, and trying to understand how Parliament has done in respect of the performance of its role. What would be your first uh, comment on this, uh, this, this fourth Republican Parliament we've had, the transitions or the evolution of that Parliament from 1993, where we had a one-sided house, to now, incidentally, that we have uh, what we call a hung Parliament. What would be your initial comment on how Parliament has worked all this while Till now. Thank you very much, uh, Salon. I think um, my initial comment, first of all, is that um, if for nothing at all, at least Parliament has helped to create uh, some stability in our democratic dispensation. Uh, at the very least, we now have a forum where, you know, Issues that concern our nation are deliberated upon, discussed, and then sometimes they agree, other times they disagree. Uh, rather than a situation where, in the in the um, in our history before the Fourth Republic, as you indicated, we've had uh, our democracies being truncated at different times. Because um, I think there was the feeling that, you know, issues cannot be resolved uh, sitting down and deliberating uh, and agreeing or agreeing to disagree. Now, in terms of uh, the performance of parliaments over the years, uh, from the first to the current one that we have, um, I think my major concern uh, and in fact, this is backed by data and a number of studies, 
is that you know when it comes to the most important function of parliament, which is holding the executive to account and performing its power of the press function, uh, our parliament has not fared quite well. Um, whether it's the, the first parliament or it's the eighth parliament. In fact, in this uh, eighth parliament, uh, there were many who had very, very high hopes that given its uh, dif different composition from all the other parliaments before it, we were going to see a parliament that was quite active, particularly when it comes to holding the government to account. The verdict is not complete yet. Uh, they still have at least a year and a half to go. But if we do an assessment up to this point, I don't think very much has changed in terms of that power of the press and holding the government to account when it comes to um, particularly issues of the budget, issues of finance, and so on. Uh, there are many others. And on the basis of that, I have an 11-point agenda uh, of reform that I think um, I'm going to share. And if uh, the leaders of our parliament are minded, at least uh, when those reforms are implemented, hopefully um, in the next 30 years, if we are all alive and we look back, uh, we might see uh, perhaps a parliament that is different from what um, we have seen in the eight parliaments that uh, we've witnessed up to this point. I see. So I don't know whether you allow me so to I'll, share I'll, my... I will give you time to share the 11-point agenda. I'm really interested in that. So I'll give you time. I don't know. I'll come back to you on that. Uh, let, okay. let me speak to um, uh, Paul, Paul Abraham Pamensa. Uh, CDD has done quite some work on, on, on MPs and, and how they have fared. 30 years on, what would be your verdict of how our members of parliament and by extension the institution of parliament has fared? Yes, uh, good, good morning, and uh, let me take this opportunity to say very good morning to our co panelists and our listeners, and uh, Honorable uh, who is with us here. Uh, as we did say in a good message uh, on the launch of the 30 years of parliament, uh, I think a lot has been achieved. Not for anything at all, as, as my uh, senior colleague said, providing the platform for deliberation, for discussion on important issue of national issues itself uh, is better. CDD did a bit of work on the three arms of government, and uh, we, we realized that parliament is the most representative, the most accessible arm of government among the three. That self uh, is a plus of democracy when you have a house, uh, an arm of government that provides platform of hearing uh, to the people they represent, that provides a platform of discussing issues before their deliberation at the house. Uh, that's the basis of democracy. Uh, but as said, uh, the expectations, the aspirations of many Ghanaians when we re-enter into Fourth Republic after our turbulent times previously uh, were that there was going to be much critical improvement in the work of our legislature because it's the eye of Ghanaians. Mm. Legislature is the mouthpiece, the eye and everything of what the other arms of government do. So if people feel that they are not having, getting the justice they deserve, uh, the complaint channel 
the person who intervenes or the how that intervenes is the house. If people think that our resources are not being managed well uh, or for the benefit of the people, our mouthpiece, our eye is the legislature. So that bit was expected of, of honorable members and the parliaments. But as uh, Dr. Rashid said, we practice a system where more and more you seek to see a bit of more influence from polit political structure on the members of the house. Oh. And there are bits of uh, uh, issues out there. Uh, I, for instance, was in involved in a project to try to bridge consensus uh, during the 2019 referendum trying to get honorable members to be on the one side to support, mm -hmm. at least even, even if not for the second question on whether MMDC should be elected on partisan or not. But the first question that Afro-Barometer just said that 75-76% of Ghanaians who want to elect their MMDCs, at least to look at that. You have a meeting with honorable members, try to build consensus. Then later you hear a party issues a statement, and it rubbishes everything, every thing we have with our honorable members. So the influence... Uh, later, the grant uh, reshuffle at parliament leadership of NDC at parliament, that some of the members were even saying they were not consulted. Whether they were consulted or not is a secret thing that is not public. But some of these things tease to tell you that the influence of party headquarters on the work of parliament is, is, is and by extension, the executives is becoming far too much, and that hinders the effectiveness and efficiency of the expectations but, of Ghanaians. But should that really be... A very big problem as, as we, we want it to, as, as we are making it sound. For example, they come to parliament on the ticket of the party. They do not come as independent candidates. So if you have an independent mind, maybe you want to mobilize your own resources, marshal the numbers, win. That is the challenge. And come to parliament. That is the challenge. So if you come on my ticket, there are basic things. I mean, there's a reason why NDC is different from MPP and CPP and PNC. There, there, there are tenets, you know, of those political traditions. So if you come on my ticket, there are some basic things that you must know that you, you cannot compromise on. You come on the ticket of party by representative of the people. Mm. Let's get that clear. You come on the ticket of uh, 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 NDC, but you are my MP, as I pray, in career constituency or in Obiaja constituency. you balancing the influence of your party and my wish. Uh, to, I just said that parliament is congratulated because the platform and the voice of the people. So that must be the precedent. That must be the most important consideration ahead of any consideration as far as national issues are concerned. Mm. And we have to say, so that, that's, that's a bit of it. But mm. all in all, I think uh, if you ask me to compare the four parliaments, mm. um, the First Republic, Second up to the four, uh, Fourth Republic, I would say I'll give a plus to the current parliament for the openness, for the transparency. Even in times that civil society organizations have done performance assessment and criticize some parliamentarians, the debate, the discussions are always respectful. Mm. That we have mutual grounds of agreeing to disagree. And that's the bits of plus for democracy. So I will say we have a, a, a structure, we have the men, we need to do a bit more to have the actual independence of our members to send the people uh, who voted them to power. So for now, i say, comparing the four parliaments, I'll give a plus to this current mm. parliament. I see. Franklin, um, what, what do you stand? The, the functions of parliament, their representational duty or, or responsibility or function, uh, their control, the function to control the public person, all of that. Will you, how will you score you know, uh, this parliament vis-a-vis -vis the previous ones 
we have seen. This parliament, meaning the fourth Republican parliament, and maybe specifically this eighth one, and the previous ones we've seen in the first, second, and third republics. Well, good morning, uh, my good friends. Uh, look, uh, I think parliament largely has done its primary duty of... Uh, representing everybody, uh, representing the people. But of course, we can people over the, the, the quality of the re representation. When it comes to the question you asked as to whether they've, they've been able to um, exercise their mandates in a way that would have been uh, absorbed, if you like, from executive influence, uh, unfortunately, especially when the, yeah, from executive influence, unfortunately, that, that jury is still out there. I mean, to the extent that we have members of parliament who would have to be looking up to the executive for positions in, in office, uh, it, it sort of become, it becomes a bit difficult to, for, for, for a ruling, I mean, members of a ruling, members of parliament of a ruling party to exert the kinds of accountability that we all require. Then that's a big, conversation I think we need to have and I don't know whether it, it's part of a constitutional amendment that we want um, otherwise I must also confess that uh, Parliament, apart from the plenary conversations and sometimes the rather disappointing uh, uh, what's the point what's it called the, um, I mean when they are interviewing prospective members of Parliament uh, sorry, members of Parliament when when people are yeah apart from that i think my close association with parliament especially the committee levels i, I found out that there's there's just a lot of gem in, in, in the, within the committees i mean you'll be surprised to to learn that people have skill sets that ordinarily you wouldn't hear them propound uh, maybe because they are not given the due in the media but a few times that we have engaged with committees, like the finance committee, Greek and uh, Cocoa Affairs, I've been overwhelmed by the, if you like, the, the detail and, 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 and the rigor with which members have critiqued. But otherwise, I must say that all in all, um, I mean, if you are looking at the fact that parliament itself it should be uh, representing people properly. Uh, I, I like to side with what uh, a notable American uh, politician said, that no man's life, liberty, or property are safe while the legislature is in session. Because, they, because there are instances where they've taken decisions that near to the negative benefit of the, of the entire citizen, especially when it comes to passing of budgets. So these are my preliminary I, remarks. I see. Great one. So, nice one. We'll, we'll, we'll dive into more of those. Um, Honorable Ayarika, you are in Parliament. You've been in Parliament, um, I think you're in the 4th, 6th, 7th, 8th Parliament. Is that correct? Yeah. And so, I mean, you, you have a, a good view of, of what this Parliament, the 4th Republican Parliament, looks like. What, what's your take on that? You, you are a participant and a player in that, in that Parliament. Well, thank you very much. For, um, and good morning to my colleague panelists here, and then you, our host, and colleagues who are joining us via Zoom. To our listeners, um, context is important. Mm. The history is important. Where we started from is important. Mm -hmm. 
This is not the first parliament we have. We have the immediate parliament that came during independence. In fact, a legislative assembly that emerged through the decolonization process and ultimately becoming the first parliament, national assembly, under the CPP majority. And then that was overthrown because and many people think the parliament did not effectively check the executive. And so the, the president and head of state, President Nkrumah, uh, history says, assumed too many powers. And uh, historians, some historians will say those powers not, were not used in the best way, ultimately uh, strangulating freedom and giving rise to a military coup d'etat. So a second parliament, which is a second Republican parliament, was designed having in mind some of the experiences of, of the first, the first uh, parliament. And so we opted to go for a prime ministerial system where the head of state, I mean, the, the prime minister was a member of parliament and there was no executive you know, president except a ceremonial one. So there was a president who really didn't have powers and all the powers were vested in Parliament with the, the head of state, who is the Prime Minister, in the Parliament, and the ministers also coming from the Parliament, trying to, to copy the, the, the British system, the Westminster system. There again, there was a military coup, and then in 1979, when we were going to the Third Republican uh, Parliament, we said, okay, um, <clears throat> let's completely separate the two. Let's have, you know, a separate parliament from a separate executive. The president is out there with his ministers. They are not part of the parliament. We will solve the problem. <laughs> you know, government will work well. The parliament will check the executive. So they separated it. First budget. Ah, they couldn't even pass a budget. So there was a coup. Some people allege that the dysfunctional nature of government at that time probably facilitated and gave some justification for the coup. So the experiment of having a separate parliament and a separate executive with no connection whatsoever uh, was not a good one. Even though in America it has served them well, mm -hmm. and in some other jurisdictions it has served them well, we claim that that was a problem. So going into the fourth Republican Parliament, they had in mind what happened in all these three parliaments and the governments and the democracy. And so they decided, okay, we're going to have an arrangement that merges the executive and the parliament halfway. So the half of the ministers should come from parliament and uh, the other half can be recruited from outside parliament for expertise that cannot be found in the parliament, and also for political balancing that cannot be achieved using existing members of uh, parliament so that a uh, president has some leverage. Uh, so that is one major feature of this um, uh, arrangement. And of course, the parliament is there with a the normal powers of a parliament to pass legislation, to check the executive, and etc.
So this is the, the background. Now, when I listened to the earlier comments, I think the concern is with how effective has Parliament been as a check on the executive? How effective has Parliament been as a check on the executive? Clearly, there has been limitations in the capacity of Parliament to be an effective check on the executive. And the one major limitation has been one that the party produces a government in, in, in office and the party produces most likely a majority in parliament. It has consistently been the pattern, except this last one, mm -hmm. where there was a near equal numbers. But consistently for the uh, first, second, third, fourth parliaments, you know, up to this last one, you find out that the party that wins the national elections to produce the president tends to have the majority also in parliament. And what that has effectively done is to, you know, just enable a situation where the president uses his powers to tempt parliamentarians with ministerial appointments uh, to get them to toe his line, because most people also have ambitions. Mm -hmm. And so for most parliamentarians, the ambition is also to become a minister of state. Very few really don't have that ambition. And knowing that it's the president that makes the appointment, it is very easy for the president to always get people to toe his line when his business is before the, the, the house. But that got worsened in recent times. It got worsened because the president now went beyond ministerial appointments and started appointing members of parliament as board chairpersons oh. of strategic state institutions. And, and the facilities extended to such members of parliament. Sometimes those facilities are even more comfortable than ministerial facilities. Oh. You, 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 no. Imagine being made uh, the chairperson of ECG, mm. the board of ECG, which is one of the, 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 the biggest, institution the biggest in institutions in terms of resources and, and, and facilities and opportunities, uh, awarding huge contracts and etc. And, and just imagine, even if a president doesn't make you a minister and makes you the chairperson of, of a board, I mean, it might actually be more comfortable than being made mm -hmm. uh, minister for certain ministries I will not mention, mm -hmm. you know. So the president started going beyond just the ministerial appointments and started, you know, co-opting MPs to their side. If they don't get them into, you know, a ministerial portfolio, then they'll put them as chairpersons of boards or even members of certain boards. And that created a situation where when you go and take the list of members of parliament on the majority side, mm. you'll find out that almost everybody is serving the president in one capacity or the other. So clearly, you know, the and, and of course, they belong to the same political party. So beyond just the ideological, common ideological inclination, there's also some material benefit coming from towing the line 
of the president. So that has tended to really disable, you know, the majority side to openly be critical of, you know, government policies. But like um, one of uh, our colleagues frankly said earlier on, a lot of the action is often at the committee level. And at the committee level, which is without the cameras and the journalists, you find out that most people tend to be very frank about government policies and, and programs and provide very critical and constructive you know, uh, views and try to change things to reflect some more nationalistic uh, interests. But immediately you put the cameras before them, the story changes. You know, people realign along party lines. So in a sense, the structure of the Constitution and the permit for the president to co-opt people on his side onto key positions in the executive has really disabled you know, many of those people and they are hardly able to, 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 to stand firm and join the minority side and, and etc. Now, when you also look at the minority side, the, 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 the common thing is that we will say everything that we want to say, but, but ultimately, when it comes to the vote, you know, the majority will, will carry the, the day. And we need to strengthen the offices, the offices of the individual parliamentarians. Because to be able to serve as an effective check, you need to be well informed. And so it is only recently, in fact, in the last two parliaments, that parliament started assigning research assistance mm -hmm. to parliamentarians. And even those research assistants, they don't really even have a budget for research. Mm -hmm. So they are there as research assistants of parliamentarians, but without even a budget for, for research. So how they are going to carry out the research work is left to the individual parliamentarians. So they end up just, you know, working within the premises of parliament. Whatever information is available within the precincts of parliament, very often is what they can lay their hands on, what is in the library or what they can Google and get on the internet. If you ask them to go around the country to gather data for you, you would have to bear that cost yourself as a member of uh, parliament. So the individual parliamentarians, you know, suffer a deficit in terms of information. We, we tend to be held by the work of people like CDD and Imani and Co. and those think tanks, ASEPA, when they put out research findings that they have conducted. Very often that is what we tend to rely on. As, as individual parliamentarians, you don't have that resource base to go out there and then carry out some in-depth research your, yourself. So, so the point uh, you're making yeah. is that for, for parliament to be, to be more effective, I mean, the state must take the research, you know, equipment yes. of the MPs yes. a bit more seriously yes. by, by allocating funds yes. for, for same. Yes. And then the second thing is that this is coming from the public, and I think it has also been generated advertently or inadvertently by the parliamentarians themselves. That confusion in the mind of the public that the member of parliament is responsible for the development of, of, of the constituency. 
it has been a major flaw of our parliamentary democracy. But uh, you brought that upon yourself. That's what I said, advertently or inadvertently, parliamentarians have created that impression to the public that they are responsible for the development of their constituencies. And that has tended to take away a lot of attention from the work of parliament. Because the individual parliamentarians want to actually do development in their constituencies. Instead of raising the issues in parliament, they want to do the issues, to deal with the issues themselves. When they are not the ones responsible for dealing with the issues. They want to build schools and are proud to display the number of schools that they have built. They want to build toilets themselves. Mm. They want to construct roads themselves. They want to construct bridges themselves. They want to extend electricity to rural areas themselves. They want to drill boreholes themselves. That brings the votes. Because our people hardly appreciate that the role of a parliamentarian is an advocacy role and not a concrete development role. So whilst we are busy doing the advocacy, people who don't have capacity to do advocacy will go on the ground and be mobilizing to do the actual mm. development. And, you know, between the person who is just stretching the bread to you and the person who says he's going to go and make noise so that bread will be brought, people will, will readily, you know, align with the person who is stretching to them, you know, a piece of bread. And so most MPs have been forced to mistakenly join that free and to go out there and try to individually, you know, do development. And the executive has worsened the case because the executive, when they try to send development to constituencies, have tried to use their parliamentarians as a medium to deliver the development to give their parliamentarian an edge over opponent, political opponents, you know? So all these things have really confused the atmosphere and misrepresented what really is the role of the parliamentarian. So the MP may not care about the vote in parliament. He won't care. You will be sitting here and say, why haven't they voted against that agreement? And, and think that parliament would be unpopular because but he doesn't care. Because he knows that he has supplied boreholes to that village. He has drilled uh, another one over there. He has built a school there. So no matter what you think of him in Accra, he will win his election yes. back home. Mm. Are you getting the yes. situation? Mm. So the, the sentiments being expressed in Accra about how parliament should function is wanting. And yet the, the reality on the ground back home in the constituency of the parliamentarian is another thing. I see. So this, you know, lack of alignment enables parliamentarians to, to, you know, quote and unquote, to fail us based on your perception of what parliament should be doing. Mm. And yet to be very fine back home in his uh, constituency. So I don't know how we're going to deal with that problem, you know, but... But for, for example, yes. uh, maybe... Uh, uh, so just, just a one-minute answer. I, no. I want to go to Honorable uh, uh, Aban. You, you think that the election of MM, uh, election of DCs or MMDCs would solve that problem largely? Because if the MMDC is elected, he obviously would have gone to the people to, to campaign. And so the people don't see just the MP as the one who owes them, quote-unquote. The DC would have gone to them with his program to get elected. So 
matters like that, the MPs can gradually take themselves out of the developmental uh, role they have assumed to the advocacy and the representational role and all of that, holding the, the, the executive in check, etc. Yeah, and I then think that gradually to the, the elected M MMCs or yes, MMCs. yeah, that that would have helped. Mm -hmm. That would have helped. Um, where there are two elected elected people, uh, people in the same geographical space, fact, three. Mm -hmm. The president is elected within the same space. Mm -hmm. There are parliamentarians elected within the limited space of the constituency, mm -hmm. and then the MC, MC is elected within the the space of the. The district. A district could be bigger than a constituency. It could be two or three yes. constituencies put together. So that would have helped, you know. But for this mis this disagreement between the, the parties about whether or not they should run on partisan platform, that was what actually divided yes, yes. The, the two political parties that really, you know, and we, we, influenced a lot seen, of the we've votes. We've not seen you MPs, or we've not seen the political structure revisit that conversation. Yeah, yes, it's something it, it, that the populace or the citizens are very interested in. Yeah. But given the even nature I, of this Even I believe that it is useful. I've been in the ECOWAS parliament, and that sends me around the sub-region a lot. And in most countries, in the sub-region, the, 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 the mayors and chief executives stand mm. by, by, by the people, and, yeah. and it, it increases the accountability stake. But it's not just that. Also, we need to look at the issue of the common funds, mm. which is shared between the assembly and the member of parliament. Mm. It gives a wrong impression of the, uh, the member of parliament being a development agent. But it was, it was meant to just support the MP. You know, he goes to a community and then they have some minor problem. It was meant to be like a budget that enables him mm. to address petty, petty matters. But it has come to be misrepresented as if he's equally a development agent. Mm. So... We need to rethink the resources that we send to the parliamentarian and what we expect the parliamentarian mm. to do. There's this discussion about building constituency offices for members of uh, parliament. And I would have uh, thought that if that happened and there was a budget for the operations of the office, um, maybe we could, we could rebrand re, re mm. the common fund money as just an administrative and research support for the parliamentarian instead of resources meant for actual development work. So, so that's one of the, the issues. But then one of the reasons, and we, we almost always you know, don't see it, one of the reasons also is the question of competence mm. and capacity. Mm. You hold on with that competence yes, and capacity. Yes, we'll, yes. we'll come back to it. Honorable Aban, welcome to the program. You have been in parliament and you are out now. You were in the last parliament but you are out now. Um, what was the impression uh, people have of Parliament being, an, once upon a time, an insider and now an outsider? You think that the people have been happy with the work of the legislature? Of course, we've had a long history, but specifically, this fourth Republican era, you, you, you think people have been happy? Because when you meet people, they tell you what you've done as a member of Parliament. Now that you are outside, they tell you a few other things. Putting all of that together, you think that people are happy with the work of Parliament? Thank you very much. Uh, good morning to uh, our cherished viewers. Good morning to my friends there. It's been a long time since I came there. Um, the question as to whether Parliament or whether people are happy with the work of Parliament depends on which people you are talking about. Probably the uh, 
those in academia, those who have had some bit of higher education and all that, would look at Parliament in terms of its real work as prescribed by the Constitution and the laws. Those who are not so endowed, and in fact they are in the majority, and are in the countryside, they are not looking at the work of Parliament in terms of what has been prescribed by the Constitution or by the laws, but like my brother Ayaga said, they are looking at the work of Parliament in terms of how much physical development you bring to them. And sometimes it crosses from even physical development to socio-cultural issues. How often does he come here? How often does he come for funerals? How often does he meet us to greet us? Uh, is he always in his air-conditioned car and he has rolled up? You may be the best in uh, your real parliamentary work, but if these socio-cultural matters, together with the uh, physical development that they want to see, because they consider the uh, MP to be the development agent, if these things are lacking, I can assure you that uh, you will see your way out in the next elections. So it depends on who uh, you are talking about. If it is those who have some knowledge of the laws and the constitution, they will try and look at the quality that you bring. That's when they will, uh, 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 they will ask. I mean, I remember people, I went for a program, and when I finished, people were asking, ah, so how did his people vote against him? With all the things that he said, with all the knowledge that he displayed, with all the, uh, you, you understand that? But when you come to my village, they are looking for whether they were looking for, uh, uh, they were looking for some uh, project, whether I've been able to do it. They are looking for their road to be constructed, whether during my time that road has been constructed. These are the things that they are looking at. Because my friend Ayaga knows, as I do, that there have been some MPs who may have even had four uh, consecutive terms. Every time successful, they come to Parliament. But whether at committee level or whether at the plenary, they have never said, "Mr. Speaker," before. Mm, yeah, I think. Yet, he, he, yes, I, I think he did allude to that. He did, he did give that example. But hold your thoughts. I will come back to you. Want to take a short break? I will come back to you to, so you conclude on the points you are making. Uh, this is the big issue on yeah. 97.3 City FM. Uh, my guest, uh, Franklin Kujo. Uh, Mahama Yariga, Dr. Rashid Rahman, Paul Abraham Pamensa, and Alexander Aban. We're looking at 30 years of parliamentary uh, uh, democracy, whether it's been an, an effective arm of government or not. And my guests have been proffering their thoughts on it. We'll take a short break, return, and then welcome our TV viewers, and then we'll, get, we'll continue with the discussion. <laughs> Set certain party lines. How has uh, our parliament dealt with its function, representational function? Have they been looking at the national interest or the partisan interest um, or the constituents' interest? Uh, what's the human resource, the quality of human resource in that parliament? Is the structure of the parliament the problem? Majority of the MPs from parliament, or how should it be? Honorable Ayariga, who's one of the guests, graciously taking us through uh, a, 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 a historical journey. Uh, 
that indeed we've experimented with almost all the types of parliament, the, the, the parliamentary supremacy type where prime minister and his ministers are from parliament and the the clean break kind of parliaments of 1979 where ministers and presidents are very separated from parliament and you know uh, they do their work as executive more like the u.s system um, we have also uh, tried to look at the matter of the election of the dc whether that will change it or will change the problems we have mps portraying themselves you know, inadvertently or not, as development agents, paying school fees, building roads, building hospitals, or promising to do all of that. Is that a way to go? And how do we change that mentality from the people? Because it, it, it puts a lot of burden on the MPs. That makes it difficult for them to be effective as members of parliament. My guests helping me do their discussion are Franklin Kujo, Mahama Yariga, Dr. Rashid Draman, Paul Abraham Pamensa, Alexander Aban. And before I went for the break, the Honorable Alexander Abba, who is a mem former member of parliament for the Goma West, was on the floor making a point. So, Honorable, you are on the floor making a point. Can you conclude on those points, please? Thank you very much. Um, we're talking about whether our people appreciate what we are doing, whether we are doing right or not. And I told you that it depends on which class of people you are talking about. So, that point is well stated. Uh, the next issue is about whether uh, Parliament, by its structure, the way it is, whether it is uh, playing its functions very well. We may have to here quickly uh, look at the functions so that we can appreciate it well. Uh, we have the deliberative functions. Uh, we have the oversight functions. Uh, then we have the uh, legislative functions where they go to uh, uh, pass laws and all that. Now. When it comes to oversight, unless you have a very good minority who try to look critically at government business that is brought, especially when it comes to loans and other things, uh, those who are in parliament and are aligned to uh, government are not so critical of what government has brought. Uh, that leads us to the thinking of whether the political parties have overbearing influence on uh, their MPs. Indeed, that is the case. So that when you go to Parliament, you realize that most often, if government brings anything, except on a very few occasions where you may have dissent within the government party people, all the people who are aligned to government are likely to go along with it and they will defend it you also see that almost everybody on the other side of the political divide will also criticize it as though we don't have independence of thought by the various individual MPs that's a problem that we may have to look at because sometimes if they see that you are taking a position which is not the position of the party, before you realize they would put some candidates against you from your own party to oust you. And so any MP who is desirous of going back to parliament is always very cautious what he must say, especially publicly, and what he must not say. The other thing has to do with the constitution. And here, 
we should not blame the framers of the constitution because the provisions in there where 50% at least of uh, ministers are drawn from parliament is a response to a historical issues where uh, there was that clean break and uh, the Liman government brought its budget and it was jettisoned by the parliamentarians including those who were aligned to uh, the government's party and so they felt that okay if we should bring this kind of balance what we may describe as balance um, whereby we draw some of the ministers at least half of the ministers from parliament uh, are we going to curb what happened but I think that probably we were too quick in responding to that because we did not experiment that 1979 constitution for a very long time and it has now uh, come to us it has now dawned on us that look in trying to solve that problem we have created a huge one the huge one we have created is that it has muzzled uh, parliament if i should put it that way especially when every person who is in uh, the government party would want to appear good to the appointing authority so that uh, they would be found favorable by the president to appoint them if you look at the recent ken must go issue right those who did not say anything or those who seem to have uh, defended ken and the status quo some of them seem to have been rewarded with just even the few recent appointments that came so those things are always on the mind of a any MP who is on the side of government. And that's why I'm saying that when it comes to the oversight responsibility, unless you have a very good minority who would, um, if I say, scrutinize these agreements and government business, we may only uh, see ourselves being a rubber stamp parliament, especially when the government party has overwhelming majority in parliament. I see. So that's I, yeah, I see. That, that, that's, that, that's, that's, that's interesting. That's, that's nice. I mean, when you speak to the MPs, their views are aligned on these matters. So, so, so I, I get that. A lot of the things uh, Mama Ariga said, you have also re-emphasized. Now, um, I want to get back to Dr. Rashid Rahman. With, um, you know, he, he, has a, he has an 11 point, he has an 11 point agenda for reform of parliament. I, I'll give you about eight minutes. To, 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 to help us appreciate this, this oath. Okay. So, so I'll, I'll come, I'll come to you. I'll, I'll come to you so we look at those 11 points, uh, agenda for, for reform. But on our bumper, when you hear all of these, you know, the matter of the structure of, uh, parliament comes up. You know, Article 78, you know, appointing more than half of members of parliament, mm -hmm. uh, ministers from parliament, etc., etc. Like Honorable uh, Bahama and then uh, Honorable Alexander Aban have said, mm -hmm. it was to solve a certain problem, but it appears we have created a bigger problem out of that. What should we be doing? I'm not sure it is an entrenched position. What should we be doing? You think the members of parliament themselves don't like it, or you think they like it, and should changing it be a difficulty? Well, let, let, let me say um, this parliaments and our honorable members uh, have been uh, frank 
on some of the issues and challenges they face. Mm. I remember when we did the research on the cost of politics, and we were speaking to the members of parliament to find out how much they spent mm. and whether it was a worry. Even when we made the public the research findings, mm. no MP question on that denied the mm. fact that it's a burden on them and they need a solution. That's the beauty and frankness of parliament that we have. When we were launching the 30 years of parliament in the Fourth Republic last uh, Thursday, and Honorable Sabuso, Honorable Kesasi 14, both said that we need to revisit our constitution. Mm. There's an issue and a call from civil society organizations like Imani, CDD, Ghana. We need to revisit our constitution. Probably second review of the constitution mm -hmm. and, and critically looking at some of the aspects that we have mentioned here to see that, yes, as, as uh, Honorable Aban said, the uh, 79 constitution was the shortest one that we had. Experiment, so it was an experiment. Yeah. He didn't even leave the first half of the first year, mm -hmm. quarter of the month, of the, of the term, just 79 to 81, two years. Mm -hmm. So how effective can you assess the performance of that constitution? So coming back, we need to revisit. But unlike the previous uh, constitutional review that we started, I think this should have come from a very good background, a mm -hmm. critical analysis of a concept mm -hmm. as to what to be reviewed. Mm. And, and why we need to review certain aspects of the Constitution. So preceding even the recommendation for review should be a critical analysis of the problems and the challenges coming from the people who practice the Constitution themselves, mm. the people who talk of the law themselves, from Parliament itself, before civil society and the general public answer. So there's, there's the need to revisit our Constitution. But critic, one critical point that always we don't talk about is the people themselves. Mm. The pressure on Parliament, apart from uh, the capacity gap, capacity in terms of professional support to our members of Parliament, is also the community pressure. Mm. The pressure I, is, I, I was on radio and somebody asked me whether I would like to be a DC or MP. I said undecided. Mm -hmm. decided because I've had friends who are MP, I've had friends who are DCs. And when I visited one of my friends on 24th December this year, mm -hmm. and I That's saw the queue mm. in his house, I told him, Honorable, I don't want to be a DC. Mm. Because I was asking where, how and how was he going to be able to satisfy the people who have come with them. And somebody came crying that the, the daughter was at the hospital. Mm. He went to the DC. He didn't go to his family head. So the pressure, the resource cap at parliament is not only the pressure that we have. The pressure comes from the community. So that bit, we need to work together with media, with civil society, with the MP themselves to try and do a thorough community sensitization. But you think the MPs are interested in, of course, they, they will talk about it, but you think they are interested in resolving that? Can they be bold enough to go to the people and tell them, guys, this is not my work. My work is to represent you. My work is advocacy. My work is... You know, in advocacy, can they be bold enough to do that? You know, in advocacy, I, 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 there's, there's a secret about police service. I don't, you know, the police service is not allowed to form a labor union. They are not allowed to do demonstration and that thing. But you know, they have the inside problem. When you are discussing with them, I say, well, this is it. So if CDD can take it up, mm -hmm. there are things that you don't expect people in the soup to initiate. Mm. You expect people to speak on behalf of people only if they will give their commitment and the collaboration for you to do. They can support you with whatever information they have background. Then you, that's the, uh, uh, the, the, the duty of civil society organizations, advocating for change in the system. Mm. You spearhead it, even though you have information from the people in the soup. But you spearhead the advocacy, you lead the advocacy. In fact, one of the duties of the, the, the National Commission for Civic Education is constitutional education, mm -hmm. rights and responsibilities. So the NCA itself can take this as a major educational 
program for the entire year of their calendar, mm. their civic week, everything, to let people know what is the actual role and duty of MPs. But the MPs can also help us. Yeah, but the MPs should be aligned on that because that, after if, if CDD or NCC or ASEPA or Imani are helping them do this, they shouldn't go back to the committee and tell them that I they will build a road. That's why I'm coming. The MPs also have role to modify their campaign messages, mm. modify their ways of doing things. In the but another guy is promising a lot and he appears to be getting it's, the masses it's a the challenge is a challenge if we don't have a consensus that we'll preach with mm. from among the mps themselves both as as honorable Aban was saying after his program on radio or tvs people were wondering why was this a, a, a competent man voted against mm. People are not thinking about your competencies in the house, as they said. Mm. You are thinking about what you can provide on a constituency. How do you modify it from the scratch, from your campaigning up to your behavior in the constituency? Mm. It's a challenge that we all have to come together. I think if this consensus is ever reached, I mean, from your experience with dealing with MPs, very difficult, way. very difficult. Yes. Because Would they even follow it? Because I'm losing because I want to stick to the consensus. The other guy who doesn't care, that's what I'm is saying. promising all over the place. That's what I'm that saying. It's very difficult. It's, it's competition, and mm -hmm. competition have tricks. Mm -hmm. So whilst we have, we might have even resolved at party level or inter-party level that this is the message that we are going to send. This is what we are going to excuse ourselves from saying from now going. Don't let us do this. Don't let us do that. The, in competition, mm -hmm. in election position, tricks and manipulations always come up. So that's the aspect we deal with. The second aspect is what you ask. Will the election of MMDC solve some of these problems? Mm. Yes. It can contribute, not entirety, mm. but it can contribute to the solution and reduction of burden on our MPs. Now, the DCs are seen as um, a national government mm -hmm. because they are representative of the government on the field. They don't hold them typically accountable as they hold their MP because they never elected any DC. Mm -hmm. They did elect MPs. So the accountability from the citizens, the bottom-up accountability, is always a pressure on the MPs. Mm. The DCs have a very few one, and mostly the pressure on DCs are from their political parties. Mm. So whilst the MP sometimes, even though align most to their party supporters, it cuts across party levels. Mm. But the DC has a small pressure always coming from the other party executive, the constituency or political party. So election of MMDCs will help solve, reduce some of the burdens on the MPs, as you said. There are other things that we can talk about mm. when we come there, but I think there are some of the things. The constitution must be revisited mm -hmm. and the sensitization issue might come. The election of MMDCs must be looked at. Mm. I see. Um, this is a big issue um, on radio and on TV and on City 2. Uh, we've been looking at the issue of 30 years of parliamentary democracy and asking whether it's been an impactful arm of government so far and all of that. Uh, a few things have come up. Pressure on MPs, uh, the MPs' role in delivering uh, their functions, representational, deliberative, uh, control of the public press, etc. And it's appearing that you know, we need to do more, but the community is also important because the community uh, overburdens somewhat the member of parliament and makes him or her unable to deliver properly. But the MPs also have a role. They go about telling them what they want to do. They will build this, they will do that, they will do that. But as we just heard from our last speaker, um, Mr. Brampa, it is the symptom of competition. And he thinks that some consensus must be reached. But whether that consensus will be respected in the heat of competition is another matter. Um, on, uh, Dr. Draman, I nearly called you Honorable. You've been dealing with MPs, so it, it, I think it's in order to call you <laughs> Honorable. Honorable, uh, Dr. Draman, uh, Yes, you mentioned the 11-point agenda. Can we hear you on that? Maybe some seven minutes to deal with the 
11-point agenda, then we can see what we do with it. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Salon. So, I think my my first point is uh, that we should start from where this all begins. That is with the political parties. I think uh, some of that has been said already. Uh, that is, you know, the matter that gives birth to um, all our parliamentarians who sit in the 275-member um, chamber. Uh, as you rightly indicated, um, they are there on a ticket of a political party, and if you want to be independent-minded, uh, you should perhaps maybe run as an independent. I mean, we know the difficulties uh, that these entail. So my first point is, you know, transparency and fairness in, uh, in, in how political parties operate in this country, particularly in choosing candidates uh, and so on and so forth. Um, then, related to that, is the fact that we want to see very little or no meddling um, of, uh, you know, the political parties in the affairs of parliament, at least publicly, because that gives a very bad image to uh, a political party in terms of, uh, sorry, the caucus in parliament. For instance, the recent, you know, if you like, order that was given by the NDC uh, to its caucus in terms of how they should vote. And then, I mean, as you indicated, when we had the rebel MPs uh, calling for the head of the finance minister, we had what came from the party headquarters. I mean, all these do not give a very um, good image in terms of um, our members of parliament being independent-minded. I mean, clearly they come from political parties, but once they are voted, I think uh, they have allegiances to other um, stakeholders in the country beyond simply their political parties. So that's my first point, uh, Selon. The second one, um, very quickly, is that we need to um, terminate the marriage between the legislature and the executive. This is Article 78.1 of our Constitution. I think that that has also been uh, touched on by some of my co-panelists. My third point is uh, Article 94.1, which is the qualification to be a member of parliament. You know, this is very open. And uh, today, members of parliament uh, deal with very, very complex issues. Uh, I think Honorable Erga will tell you, uh, even if you have uh, a PhD in law and they bring something to you that uh, borders on finance, uh, it becomes quite difficult. So imagine uh, those that do not have uh, maybe the qualification that will make them to at least have some basic understanding of uh, some of these complex issues. My fourth point, Selon. Uh, is that we need to democratize, democratize um, the processes related to our committees in Parliament. What do I mean by this? Um, I think we have to move from a situation where currently the party caucuses and the leadership decide who chairs uh, a parliamentary committee. Appoint the committees and allow members to decide who their leaders should be. And I think in, in some parliaments that have been effective where members can hold the leadership of their committees to account, this has been uh, the practice. And then related to that, uh, my next point is that we should make committee 
practices and procedures uh, a bit more proactive. I mean, if you look at Order 1921, uh, I think it talks about the fact that, you know, committees have to be instructed or committees have to be, uh, matters have to be referred to committees before uh, they can take up action. You know, if, for instance, we are sitting down and there's flood in this country and a committee of parliament um, wants to move and, uh, and, and look at this matter, uh, they have to wait until the, the matter is referred to them by the right honorable speaker or, or by parliament. But is that really uh, the case? No, is that really the case? Because I, I recall him what? recently, a committee visited the Saglemi uh, housing project. I don't recall any instruction from Mr. Speaker that they should do that. And well, of course, yes. well, I think, yes, Honorable Lairga is there. Maybe he can clarify. But okay. whatever it is, there is, there is ambiguity if mm. you read the standing orders. Well, there are no, there is no, because I have seen many instances where members will say, they go out and do some work, but because the matter is not referred to them by the House, mm. it's very difficult to get it on the agenda of Parliament. Okay. Let uh, Honorable Erga uh, provide more clarity. Let me, so. let me go yes, to my, mm. my points. Yes. yes. Uh, then the next one is the issue of the caucus leadership. I think we have to see some democratization of this as well. Coming on the back of uh, you know, the recent NDC reshuffle and all the challenges that, that came with it. I mean, there is no clarity. Uh, a party will sit down at its headquarters and decide that, you know, uh, Kokosan has 136, 137 members. Uh, this is your leadership. I think there are problems with that. And, uh, and, and, and our parties will need to look at this. Then my next point, Selon is that we need to regulate and, uh, and, and, and try to find a way of operationalizing representation. Um, Honorable Ayerga has made reference to the fact that, you know, for instance, they don't have offices uh, in the constituency. You go to some parliaments in Southern Africa, almost every MP has an office in his constituency. If I want to find my MP right now in my constituency, I have to chase him and be lucky to find him anywhere I could find him. And Salom, related to this, is the fact that, you know, oversight, to some extent, is regulated. They sit in parliament, they work at the level of committees and so on. Lawmaking, the same. Uh, I haven't seen any clear, um, um, uh, if you like, I mean, um, uh, guidelines in terms of the fact that these are the periods when members of parliament necessarily have to be in their constituencies. So we hear over the years, a lot of citizens complain, we don't see our MP until uh, he or she is looking for our votes and so on and so forth. Um, that has to be looked at very critically so that we have a way of ensuring that, you know, if we have representatives, and that is, you know, the basis of, of, of our constitutional democracy, that this representation is, uh, is regulated in such a way that we all, we all have access to those who represent us, so that they can articulate our views. Because as uh, Honorable Ayerga said, their role is more advocacy, but not um, what it has been over the years. Uh, then my next uh, point, uh, Salam, is, you know, we've talked about the vetting of ministerial nominees and all the challenges, uh, particularly in the recent ones that we have seen. I have called over the years for decentralization of, uh, of this vetting process. 
so that a committee on agric vets the minister designate for agric, a committee on defense and so on and so forth. Uh, then my next point, uh, and this is becoming a very serious problem for most of our countries. Parliament must have a committee that should deal with debt management and debt ceiling. Uh, I have seen one parliament that has recently taken this step. That's the parliament of Kenya. Otherwise, um, perhaps it's not the last time we are going to be saddled with this uh, huge problem that's, that threatens to, to derail our democracy. Uh, Salam, my next point is that we need to improve integrity in parliament. And what do I mean by this? Uh, the way the Privileges Committee of Parliament works. Over the years, I think many of our citizens have complained that you know Parliament has failed to regulate its own. Whenever a matter is referred to the Privileges Committee, uh, people would say perhaps that's the end of that matter. And very recently we saw what happened in the case of the three honorable members who were referred to the committee for um, failure to show up and do their work in Parliament. Um, we all saw what happened um, uh, regarding Honorable Ajwasafo and so on and so forth. And then, um, Salam, finally, um, I think my uh, very important point here is research and analysis in support of members of Parliament. Uh, Honorable Ayrega has made reference to the fact that, you know, until recently, uh, they, did, they didn't even have um, research support. Um, when, for instance, a very important document is referred to a committee of parliament, members are on their own. Over the years, we've been working with parliament to set up uh, a budget office, parliamentary budget office, or what do they, they want to call a scrutiny office, or a policy analysis office, and so on. Um, that has not happened, despite you know, a lot of effort that has gone into this. There is a research department, um, but that research department is still currently being built. Uh, so you have maybe about 20 or so researchers. Uh, if you want to do a ratio of 275 members to researchers in parliament, I mean, you can imagine, you know, the kind of burden that goes on these individual um, researchers. If we don't have that, then I think uh, in most cases, members of parliament will be shooting in the dark. Because as I said, even if you have the highest qualification in a particular field, there is no limit to the matters that parliament deals with. They walk into the chamber today, they are dealing with a Greek. The next day, they are dealing with um, uh, perhaps finance. The other day, they are dealing with legal matters and so on. So even if you have the best of qualifications, I think like we see in, in some of the advanced democracies, in the, in the U.S., for instance, they have 400 researchers that work in the Congressional Research Service, and they have about 300 uh, experts that work in the Congressional Budget Office. All these to support the work of members of parliament, so that if there's an issue, please they very quickly go into uh, the issue to proper analysis and provide members of parliament with maybe just a one-page or two-page analysis. That would help them to go into the chamber and debate the issues from a very informed position. I've said all these, Salam. Somebody would ask, how would all these change, uh, perhaps how uh, our parliament would look like? I mean, all these would not change if one condition doesn't change. I think that condition 
is the issue of integrity on the part of those who lead us, the issue of integrity on the part of our members of parliament. That one, I don't have an answer to it. I think every individual member who goes into the chamber, I think must know that history will judge them in terms of how they perform their duties. And the issue of integrity is key here because most of the time, most of them uh, are not ignorant about uh, what to do. I think they are constrained by a number of these uh, issues that we've talked about. So I rest my case here, Selo. Yes, interesting, interesting points, 11 points you, you made. But just, just, just a quick few points. You, you're talking about the determination of the marriage between the legislature and the executive, calling for uh, a proper separation of powers um, as, as the concept it, 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 it tries to, to portray. But would the MPs agree? Of course, a lot of the people who go to parliament actually want to be ministers. And so, and in order to do this, the constitution must be amended. I mean, it is not an entrenched position. The, the, the marriage between the two, uh, from my reading of Article 290, is not an entrenched position, which means that parliament can, you know, marshal itself together and then pass it, I think, with a two-thirds majority or something like that. You think that they will want yes. to take from themselves this power. So we can say it, that we will want it, but with the MPs themselves want to take out that attraction of becoming a member, becoming a minister of state by virtue of be, you being an MP, would they want to take that power from themselves and say yes, that indeed. it should be a clean break? Yes, indeed, Salam. I think you are right on that. I mean, I have described our parliament as a big waiting room for executive appointment, I mean, many years ago when we were talking about some of these things. And let me say... Uh, during the constitutional review process, we had a national conference uh, at the conference center. And I remember uh, Dr. Atuba and the, the, the committee at the time uh, gave me the responsibility of leading the discussion on the submissions related to parliament. And there were two key issues at the time that we were discussing. Number one was this qualification to be a member of parliament. Members of parliament were up in arms, those who attended that, uh, that session. Let our people decide who they want to send to Parliament. It's not for any constitution to tell us uh, what qualification you must have. Number two, I think, was the issue of this uh, separation of powers. And members of Parliament were vehemently opposed to this. They said, um, let the President uh, decide who he or she wants uh, his ministers to be. And then some of them were even very sarcastic. We can't uh, struggle and bring our party to power and then leave it to others to come and to come and uh, to come and enjoy, if we can put it that way. And so that has been the bane. Uh, and you are right. Uh, I'm not too sure if we do a census of uh, members in the house. I think more than 90 percent, uh, as Honorable Ayerga has indicated, uh, there are very few who are not who would not be interested in ministerial appointments. So many many parliamentarians see this. As a, as a stepping stone, be in parliament and then uh, cut the eye of the president and then you have the luck of being a minister of state. I believe, Selom, if we divorce uh, parliament from the executive, I think we are going to see some very uh, high quality of representation. We are going to see very high quality of debate because those who go to parliament will be really those who are interested in building a career as a legislator and not maybe using that as some kind of uh, 
have any through which uh, they could achieve some other political ambition. Mm. Very well. Another one, just quickly. Uh, you talk about regulation, I think it's point seven or so. Regulation and finding a way of improving representation. And you, you did say that at some point, members of parliament must necessarily be in their constituency. There should be a regulation or something to ensure that they are in their constituencies at every point, I mean, at a certain point, necessarily. But they have recess. So parliament sits during term time. You know, they have recess. And the recess is to afford them the opportunity to go back to their people, have discussions with them, and then come back with fresh ideas, come back and then do the work. So what then will the recess period mean? If we are to uh, find a specific time or a time for them to necessarily be in their constituencies. And being in their constituencies, it's self-motivated because the more you go there, the more they retain you, the more they return you to parliament. So the recess, I thought, provided for that period where you necessarily have to be in, par in, in, in the constituency. That, that is the assumption, Salom, but that is not what happens in reality. Um, not all members of parliament go back to their constituencies during recess. Um, I think if you want to uh, monitor closely members of parliament, I mean, that is the time that some of them travel outside the country and so on and so forth. Um, you know, in, in, in the parliament of Tanzania, they have a period, not the recess period, they have a period that is dedicated to constituency work. So in their standing orders or whatever regulation that they have, they say during this period, that is a period when uh, parliament I mean, uh, is in the constituency. During this period, that is a period when committees are sitting. So that when plenary is going on, I mean, no distractions, no committee meetings, and so on and so forth. In this, our parliament, over the years, I haven't seen, uh, and even if it is there, the assumption that members of parliament have to be in their constituency during uh, the recess periods. How do we regulate that? How do we ensure that members go? Through, I mean, it's in their own interest, because the more you are there and the more you interact with your uh, constituents, the better your chance in terms of uh, your likability and so on, and then maybe the better the opportunity for you to uh, re-represent them when the when the time when the time comes. Regrettably, not very many people, very many MPs, uh, go to their constituency uh, during the recess period. The, about the cons the, the uh, qualification, what, what should be done about the qualification? I thought the qualification as provided for in 94-1 is, 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 is broad enough. Do you want it restricted or narrowed? Or what do you want to say? For example, you well, should have a university degree or I mean, what, 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 what should be said about the qualifications? Well, I think uh, in some parliaments, for instance, I was in Zambia two weeks ago and in their parliament, he says you must have grade 12 minimum qualification before you become a member of parliament. In other places, they say you must be able to read or uh, read and write. Um, I don't know. I'm not. I mean, uh, here to prescribe what the qualification should be. But my point is that look, they deal with very, very complex issues. Even if you are highly educated, you are not in a position to understand all the issues that come before the house. So to leave it open. And then we have, for instance, if somebody has GSS qualification uh, and he or she is in parliament, uh, I'm sorry to say, I mean, their contribution is going to be very, very minimal on many issues. And that's why 
you know, sometimes some people say uh, a member will go to the house for four years and you never hear his or her voice. Uh, this might be partly due to uh, uh, this situation where they get in there and they're intimidated by the issues that they have to deal with. And that's, you know, their qualification is not able to match up with, uh, with those uh, difficult and complex issues. I see. I interesting points. Uh, Franklin, um, the, the, the issue about the clean break, I mean, it's come up, we've discussed it even before uh, um, Dr. Rashid uh, spoke. You, you think that the members of parliament themselves will be happy with uh, that attraction of being in parliament taken away from them, i.e. being appointed into executive positions? How do we approach that? Because it's a difficulty. If that is what we want, and because it's not an entrenched position, the MPs themselves um, as a country can come together and say, let's amend that part of the constitution. But the MPs will be critical because there's a prescription, as in the number of MPs who must come together, or in terms of the voting, to test or so will have to vote for that. Can we scale that? Well, I mean, if we are intent on, uh, we are, if we are bent on changing, if you like, the status quo, why not? I mean, that conversation can be broached. I suspect it can only be done through through the law, and, and indeed the MPs, uh, there must be a lot of conversation and probably bipartisan approach to dealing with it, because uh, come help me, those who are in power would definitely like to, to be part of the executive. And so we have to navigate that particular path uh, very uh, carefully. But but I think it's, it's doable. And and, it, and it's in the interest of parliament itself, especially if they really want to, if, if it really wants to assert its, its, its primary role, uh, I mean, one of the rules as uh, having oversight over the executive. Because without that, really, um, Parliament's work indeed. Uh, I mean, Parliament's work would be quite difficult, and and I think it is possible that that can be scaled if the right conversations are had. I, I see. H how about democratizing the caucus leadership? Well, that is important for this Parliament. For example, the leadership or the chairmanship of a caucus. Um, I mean, that's I'm talking about the committee levels. It, it's it's so important so that the committee members themselves will decide who chairs the committee. Um, how workable is, is that in the current scheme of things? Well, again, these are rules that I suspect Parliament itself may have to uh, work, work, work out. Uh, otherwise, I was going to say that, I mean, what's the benefit of a hand Parliament, by the way, if, 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 if we can get this done? And in instances where we did, we may not have hung parliaments. I think this idea of democratizing the committees uh, is a very forceful one and must be pursued. I know you'll be happy with with, the, with with this one, the committee to deal with the debt ceiling or debt management of a country. Well, without the doubt, I mean, without the doubt, I mean, it, we, we, beyond the committee itself, I think it should be a law. <laughs> that must be passed. That like, no government should be allowed to to breach a certain level of what I call the debt iceberg, and, and, and so it shouldn't be, be at the committee level. This must be legislated and and then uh, adopted. Mm, I see. On you 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 are in the in the thick of affairs. I mean, you, you have seen many parliaments work. Um, this suggestion uh, that you know. Uh, you know, uh, Parliament, for example, the, the, the leadership or the caucus as a whole 
must see very little uh, meddling, you know, from the party itself. How possible or feasible is that? Of course, the, the recent issues about leadership change, etc. we spoke at length about it here. But is it possible to say that the meddling or the interference of the party itself in the affairs of the caucus should be regulated or should be reduced? Can we say that? No, I don't think so. I don't think you can seriously make a strong case for a party not directing its uh, caucus. Truth of the matter is that the party is an organization that, as an individual member of parliament, you have subscribed to and its ideological preferences. The party has worked hard to build a brand on which you have run. Mm. as a candidate and you have been elected into parliament on the ticket of that uh, political party so there is some constitutional commitment to protecting the position of the party being respected mm. by people who choose to run on the ticket of the party so we shouldn't pretend that our constitution does not uh, try to protect party interest mm. So if you get elected on the ticket of a party and then you go to parliament and you, uh, you don't want to abide by uh, party positions on, on matters, clearly you, you, you're not doing the right thing. Mm. Very often, what the party pushes of in the national interest. Mm. Yes. So for instance, the NPP came to parliament pushing for e-levy. The NDC was against E-11. But the NPP was convinced that E-11 was needed to address the country's prevailing financial situation. Even the majority of the Ghanaian populace didn't really want to pay the E-11. But that's a conviction that the NPP uh, was coming to Parliament with. So most of the time, you may disagree, but... That is the party's conviction about what is in the national interest, yes. their view of what, is in the, what should be the national uh, preference. And so you may disagree with them what that national interest is, but that's their view of what is in the national interest. I mean, no party will ever instruct its MPs that go and kill somebody, and that is in the interest of the party. No party will do that. So when policy options come up and they say, we prefer this option, and so all of you, you know, follow this option. Uh, if, you, if you don't want, then next time don't run on their ticket. Mm -hmm. uh, can you clarify for us, what are in terms of the committee practices, must they always be instructed or must the matter always be referred to them by the speaker before the no, 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 no. The speaker refers matters to committees to deal with. But each committee is supposed to draw up its agenda mm. for the year. And each committee has a budget. The problem is that the budget, very often, like most budgets, tend not to be released. But there's a budget for committee activities. And so it's up to you as a committee chairperson with your ranking and then your members to agree on your program for the year. And then to um, rise up to the occasion when matters that relate to your sector come up, even as an emergency or something. You're supposed to move. You, you, you are not supposed to wait for the speaker to direct you before you move. And if you go and then you make some findings and you come and you report to the House, the House will deal with it. Mm. So it's all about the leadership of the, the committee.
They can be a proactive leadership. They can also be a laid-back leadership. But there are no strict rules that prohibit you. The only rule that you know may prohibit you the rule that there's no money mm. to facilitate <laughs> your movement. Yeah, so, <laughs> as a, so, as a so, so back to the no meddling yeah. point. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what your side, you guys were trying to do this week? The, the, the previous week, your party issued an edict of a kind. Don't approve the ministers. I mean, the 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 the, 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 the new appointees or nominees. Don't approve them. I think we were in that press conference on Monday, and you, you did speak. What are you guys trying to, to do? You vet them, but you will not approve them, no matter how good they are. You know, wouldn't that, didn't that prejudice the process? If you had waited, or your party had waited for the vetting to be done, as a question, now you come out to say, well, we're not convinced by the answer, so don't approve of them. That would have been easier on the ear than to say that, vet them, but don't approve them, no matter how good they are. What, 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 was, what were you trying to, to put across? Actually, it wasn't about their competence, to be frank with you. It had nothing to do with their competence. Many of them perhaps are competent. Many of them are personal friends. We've been in the house with them for years. And when you're in a place like that, you develop relationships across party lines. Sometimes it's so difficult to look a friend in the face and say, I will not vote for you. But um, the underlying principle and position of the party is that the size of government is huge, and it's one of the problems that we face in terms of public expenditure. We want to see a commitment on the part of the president to downsize government. President John, former President John Ramani Mahama, who most likely will be the flag bearer of the NDC, has projected that the country can be run with just 65 ministers. So 65 ministers. We now have over 80, close to 85, yeah. 86 ministers of state and deputy ministers of state. And so we're saying that, look, in these difficult times when we're asking pensioners, we're asking individual bondholders, we're asking institutional bondholders, we're asking our foreign creditors and etc. to um, forgo some of their monies and defer payment for uh, their legitimate claims on the public press. If we're asking them to make these sacrifices, we must also be seen meeting them somewhere, no matter how minor, no matter how symbolic. It, it might not be a huge amount of money, but just symbolic to say that, look, you know, we are also making sacrifices. So we thought that when these ministers decided to resign, the president had to use the opportunity. Okay, I have an existing stock of ministers that already people are complaining is huge. So why don't I just reposition the, the existing stock of ministers to occupy these ministerial vacancies that have occurred instead of trying to replace them mm -hmm. and maintaining the number at the levels that people are complaining about. So our principal position is that, look, you don't need to add new ministers, just two ministers or the three. One, one the chief tenancy minister hasn't been well. Uh, two ministers have uh, resigned. Uh, one minister of state you know, resigned earlier, that is uh, uh, Charles uh, Edubwahi. So you have about 82 ministers left. So just realign the ministries, some of them, and then reposition the ministers. And with the same 82, uh, 83 ministers, you could still run the, the government and send a message that, you know, government of Ghana is also reaching out in terms of making sacrifices. 
so that individual bondholders and pensioners and everybody else will also say, okay, let's also make the sacrifice. But you are not doing that, and then you're asking others to, 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 to lose their money. So the position is a principle. It has nothing to do with the qualifications of the individual MPs. Why did we participate in the vetting? If we don't participate in the vetting, and we don't participate in a vote, people will say, oh, these MPs, you can't trust them. You see, they could have disqualified the MPs by voting, and then maybe some of them uh, nominees will lose. But they deliberately stayed away so that they can have their way, pretending that they are really against them. Because if we stay away, and the MPP will have a quorum to, to, to transact business, they will uh, vet them, they will write a report that says that the nominees have been approved by consensus. And once the report comes to the House that the nominees have been approved by consensus, you cannot say, let's vote on the nominees. So we will participate in the vetting, and we'll make sure that the report says that there has been no consensus. So that then compels you to bring them to plenary for a vote to be taken. And then at the vote, we'll try and vote against as much as we can, even though you can't say anything about secret ballot. You know, after secret ballot, anything can happen. Yes. Either you can win speakership as we did, or... You know, how Kumsun will get voted, uh, get, get, the, get approved, <laughs> as our Kumsun did. Yes. Anything can happen, yes. but you will put in your best effort. Yes. And so we didn't want to be accused of having conspired to, to get the people to go through in spite of our principal position. So when you, you in principle, are against something, your actions must show that you are against that thing. So, you know, participating in the vetting, was so that we will be able to say that there has not been consensus on them and then force an issue of elections at uh, plenary. Mm. If you win at plenary, well, we've done our part. I see. I interesting. Uh, mm. This is a big issue. We are coming to you live from uh, our studio, 97.3 City FM and on City TV, also live on City Tube YouTube. Uh, your comments have been coming to read a few of them soon. Uh, 020 We've been looking at the issue of parliamentary uh, democracy and the effectiveness of it, of our 30-year-old Fourth Republican uh, Parliament and, and, and what we can do to improve it. A number of things have been said. Uh, how to ensure transparency and fairness. Uh, what the role of the political parties must be in respect of this, uh, you know, the qualifications of members of parliament, what should happen to the leadership of the caucus, must they be voted for by the members of the caucus, or as it is now, the party will just appoint people, consensus or not, and get them to be leaders. What really must be the issue? Um, Honorable Aban, uh, there's been a point made about, uh, about integrity. How do we ensure that the integrity of members of parliament is improved, which can, if you like, change the mindset of people about parliament and how they undertake their job. For now, as we have it, there's a lot of suspicion about what the members of parliament say because they say they are politicians and you cannot trust politicians. You know, what, what do we have to do about this? As MPs, you have been in and out. What can we do about this? Thank you very much. Um, as at now, it appears the use of the word politician evokes negative sentiments in the minds of people. 
they think that politicians are tricksters, they think that politicians are liars, they think that politicians uh, would want to use every foul means to get what they want at the expense of the people. So you realize that any time even uh, the media people are discussing issues of uh, national concern, uh, development here, maybe some uh, uh, rubbish dump that must be moved and all that, they will not talk about the citizens. They will immediately zoom in to the politicians. Meanwhile, uh, it appears to me that the politicians actually reflect the psyche, the lifestyle, and the thinking of the average Ghanaian. Uh, it is because sometimes the person who is complaining have not had the opportunity of being put at the position of the politician. Probably he would do worse. But having, <coughs> sorry, having said that, I think that we as political class must start uh, having reorientation of the reasons why we ourselves go into uh, political office or public office. It appears to me that the biggest um, incentive for any young man who is trying to enter politics is about how he uh, amasses wealth and how he makes himself relevant to uh, the people. It appears that uh, that mistrust is so deep because somebody who was in the trenches with us gets uh, to be in parliament by the stroke of luck and by the people who vote for him and within four, hours, four years or after four years he's so filthily rich and all that how did that come about these are all some of the things that feed into yes. the suspicion and the thinking of the politician as somebody who is not trustworthy and all that so all those things we must look at the lifestyle of the politicians we must do some kind of lifestyle audit <clears throat> because uh, I was asked somebody asked me for some money uh, I, in fact it was not something that he was getting for any project or something like that you know those people who come to you those kind of things then I gave the person 20 and she said ah we are in government. Why are you giving me 20 cities? So the thinking is there, even among the populace, that as soon as you get into government, there are goodies. So that's why the fight for political power is so intense. Because when uh, you win, it's just like uh, a war. So you win the election, you have won the war. And so you go to government and share the spoils. That has been the case. I see. And so you can get a political, uh, yes. 
I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you for the final round of, of questions, then, then we can wrap this up. But Honorable Ayeriga, uh, just briefly, this parliament promised a lot, you know, a lot, because people felt that the so-called rubber stamp parliaments we've had in the past were the problems. And now we have the hung parliament, 137, 137, one in between. Do you think that this parliament has lived up to its expectation, first of all? Uh, what about yes. expectations were? <laughs> well, I, I, I think that uh, we're doing our best. Uh, people may not be satisfied, but um, we have, for instance, the parliament held E-Levy for close to one year and prevented E-Levy from being passed until finally through some maneuvering and etc mm -hmm. it was passed but you know we held the grounds for a very long time it wasn't easy government wanted to pass in levy it was difficult is that okay there are major policy issues that just the numbers alone have scared government from even just bringing to us because they know that they bring this one. Will Japan be one of them? Yeah, things like that. Mm. They just won't dare because they know that they don't have the kind of numbers with which they could just reroute many, many things. There are appointments that have been held for a long time. For instance, the Supreme Court nominees mm -hmm. that were brought. Well, what's happening you know, to that? I mean, it's it's only. I think so yesterday, yesterday, uh, yeah. it was, I think yesterday, I wasn't in the chamber. Uh, I came and left for some other assignment. But yesterday was supposed to be presented to the house. But things like that, I held on until you have been able to achieve a consensus. But what, what you do you want the two other nominees to, to do? The Supreme Court nominees. I mean, you, 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 you it, it will be resolved. It will okay. be resolved. I mean, like I said, these are the kind of things that happen. People don't see mm. these things because we don't go out there making so much noise. But these days, it's become very difficult for government to do anything, mm. you know, because you need to build consensus around the issues before we will agree. So, contrary to what people think, this parliament has been very, very effective because we've, we've negotiated so many things. You come, we say, okay, fine. Uh, this has to happen. Yeah, we know. We've, we've run the country before, so we know that this has to happen, that has to happen. But it cannot happen this way. It has to happen this other way. And then when there's agreement, then you, you, you restructure it and bring it back. And then we push it. So contrary to what many people think, they don't see us throwing chairs at each other and etc. So they think that we are not effective. You know? But you don't have to be throwing chairs at each other all the time. So trust me, this, this numbers game has been useful. You, you, you think the expectation of the public is overbloated, or you think the public is expecting too much, you know, from this hung parliament, or you, you think the expectations are justified? Because people think no, that the expectations they, are justified, um, because people, people want to see. People are disappointed when those three ministers yeah, people, were passing. Yeah, people want to see. Yeah, people want to see parliament serve as a real check on the executive. But the point I made earlier is that it's a majoritarian system, mm. which is that you must always win the votes using your numbers. As we speak today, hmm, 
on any single vote that takes place where a simple majority is needed. And most issues are by simple majority. And people should win the vote. Mm. So they have one extra. Because they have one extra. And you have you are one down. We are one down and then they, they have one extra. So on any single vote that should take place in Parliament, MPP should win by at least one vote. Unless people put enough pressure on MPP parliamentarians to also cross the line and vote with the NDC. So if the impression created that the NDC has not utilized its numbers, that's not the case. The only time when you see us being able to win an election is when it is secret ballot, like the speaker's election. It is because it was secret ballot. If it was, you know, not a secret ballot, there is no way the NDC would have won but that, how that vote. But how were also secret ballots, but you lost yes. that one. Yes, those ones, you know, people had all sorts of reasons. Uh, for instance, what were the issues against our Kumsin? Some people say, oh, she's not highly educated. Ah, have you gone to check the CVs of the MPs themselves? The rest of the MPs. Have you gone to check their CVs? So people saw themselves in Howard Kumsin. Hmm. People saw themselves in Howard Kumsin. So, ah, so, uh, NDC4, are you saying that if NDC comes to office, me too, I will not be qualified for NDC. <laughs> <laughs> People, people saw themselves in Howard Kumsin. I get the situation. The Greek minister. Uh, yeah. I mean, you guys said he was he, he, he was arrogant at the vetting, and, and, and a lot of people think so too. And the way he dealt with some of the issues were not convincing. That was what your team sent to the floor, kind of. But we ended up passing him. You see, the party has control over its MPs, but there's a limit to party control. Mm. Come to secret ballot, anything can happen. When it comes to secret ballot, look, you are representing a constituency in which there are MPP members, there are NDC members, but NDC members are more than the MPP members. Mm -hmm. But all of you have a common chief. Mm -hmm. So the chief calls and the that, king. Uh -huh. <laughs> and there's a vote. And then the nominee goes to see the chief. And the chief calls you on the phone and says, oh, please, uh, you know, your brother on the other side has been nominated. We are lucky that our kingdom has been blessed with a nominee <laughs> to be a minister. Are you going to deprive me of a son who is a minister? <laughs> okay, you can do what you want and come back next time and say I should also help you to be MP. Well, that's a secret ballot. He will know you voted against him. Once his will is not done, he has no way of knowing that you tried to get his will done. Mm. Do, do you understand the point? So there are forces beyond the parties and, and pressures beyond the capacity of the individual members of parliament. And sometimes the parliamentarians in their judgment ask very critical questions. Say, for instance, okay, fine. If I deprive this person of being a minister... What do I get? What do I get? Satisfy the public desire not to have this person become minister the because they say he's arrogant. You save the state. How do I save the state? You save the state. The man the is arrogant. Do I know the person who will come in his place? No, but so you, you keep changing. You, the you point I'm making is that people though. have different ways of, of judging assessing. and assessing. Some people, you, you agree 
you meet as, as a, a minority caucus, and then you say, won't approve this person. And that person comes from a certain region. Then within you, the people from your region, that region come and say, about you, this one, we are sorry. Uh, we will not be able to go along with you on this issue. Mm. They just tell you that we won't be able to go along with you on this issue. The person from our region, if he is taken out, we don't know whether the person will nominate another person from our region to occupy that place. And people believe that whether it's NDC or MPP, once somebody from their region occupies a certain ministerial portfolio, most likely that region will benefit from development. Uh, some development opportunities. And why are we all there? We're all there hoping to attract development. You will say that you don't want development in your area simply because MPP is in office. So for the four years or eight years that the MPP will be in office, nothing should come to your region. So, so there are so many forces at play when it comes to these uh, nominees' uh, approvals and the voting exercise. No side can guarantee you, no side can guarantee you of any outcome when it comes to secret balloting, when it comes to nominations to ministerial portfolios. You will do your best. You will try. You will make a statement. Because the minority caucus represented on the appointments committee voted against all of them. Okay? And wrote a report which rejected consensus approval and forced them to be brought to the chamber. So to that point, you've done your best. The outcome of any secret ballot, and I keep telling NDC members and the public that, ah, after a secret ballot is, you can't determine the outcome. If we could determine the outcome, we wouldn't have won the speakership. <laughs> because we're less than them, but we want the speakership. Very well. So any you know, secret ballot, you can't be sure how it will turn out. Very well. Thanks so much, Honorable Mahama Erega. It's a pleasure having you every time. Um, so, um, Honorable um, Aban, I, I, I come back to you because you, you have also been there. Looking at it from outside, I don't know if it was a parliament you would have loved to be in, a hung parliament, one with a lot of difficulties. What would be your assessment of that? And do you think they have delivered on the expectations of the people? Thank you. Um, I think that, you. like I said, uh, if you get a minority that is very critical, and not necessarily in terms of critique uh, or uh, the scrutiny of uh, government business, because even if they are very critical, but the numbers are uh, insufficient, they will have their say anyway, and government will have its way. But with uh, a hang parliament, as we have it, I think uh, if government is introducing anything to parliament, uh, they will think about it uh, quite deeply before they uh, present it. Uh, you realize that uh, probably uh, a Japan deal may have gone back to parliament or some of those things. Uh, you realize that the two Supreme Court nominees have not received their endorsement from parliament, most probably because the numbers uh, are so close that if you take any risk, you may lose it. And so to the extent of the numbers, um, we will say that uh, Parliament, through the activities of uh, the minority, uh, have achieved quite a lot, especially when it comes to oversight responsibility uh, and, and checking, uh, I mean, putting government in check. But there's still uh, a lot of room for improvement uh, because 
so long as all issues are look at it from partisan lenses even before we start thinking about the collective good and the voice of our constituents we still have a long way to go because i have still not come to any good understanding why anything that is introduced by the government may find broad support from those on the side of government and we have uh, safe resistance also from those uh, on the other side of uh, the political divide. We should start looking at situations where individuals would vote based on their own convictions on the things that have been put before them. And uh, uh, I, I believe that is what will make us see that uh, our democracy is growing. And like I said, all these things are impacted somehow by our constitutional structure. And so if we get, for instance, a clean break from executive and the legislature, we may have people who are on the side of government uh, resisting strongly something that is coming from government. And they would do that based on their own conviction. But when they sit in waiting, hoping that they will be found and made ministers, uh, you realize that they will not be able to say much. So, uh, plus and minus, uh, I think the Hang Parliament, somehow, somehow uh, it's a blessing which we have not explored fully. Uh, so, uh, the bottom line for me is that for us to have a very effective parliament, something must be done with the constitutional provisions. Mm. That way, we cannot run away from it. Very well. Thanks so much, um, Honorable uh, Alexander Aban Esquire, former MP for Gomoa West. Uh, Franklin, what do you think about the hung parliament? Civil society was happy when we got these numbers. Um, people thought that we we'll always have some activity in parliament. Uh, but here we are. Um, the jury is still out, though. What do you think? And how do we improve well, it? Except the, um, the rough tactics that were being adopted to eliminate some members of the minority of parliament, um, it, it tells you clearly that the minority has held its own. I, I really love my heart uh, for, to them, and I think they've done exceedingly well. Uh, I, I mean, look, the the conversations about economy, they've been there, right? Uh, they've warned against profligacy, they've warned against our debt levels, they've warned against virtually everything. Maybe the other thing we probably need is, uh, I don't know whether it would be too much to ask if voting should be done openly. You know, at least we need to know how members vote on very critical issues. I mean, in, in far-seeing democracies, I use this advisedly, uh, you tend to see records. Of, uh, of course, you see it in the Hansas, by the way, but you can't infer that the way people vote from the Hansas in, in, in our parliament, right? So maybe we should we should ask for that as well. But on a substantive issue, I think the Hang Parliament has been useful. Uh, it has made the executive a bit more careful, even though it's, it's, it's over, quite clearly still stubborn. Uh, but but the minority has held its own, and and kudos to them. I see. Uh, Dr. Drahman, um, I don't know whether you've seen this kind of 
Oh, okay, okay, Dr. Rahman, we don't, we don't have him. So, uh, let me conclude with um, uh, Paul uh, Abrampa Mensah. Um, I don't know whether we've seen this situation anywhere before, this kind of hung parliament. First of all, like I've asked the rest, do you think that it's, 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 been, it's lived up to its expectation? If, if, if not, why? If yes, how do you even improve it? Thank you, sir. The, when, as soon as we finished these uh, elections mm -hmm. and we had a parliament, uh, Institute for Security Studies in Nigeria mm -hmm. uh, consulted me to do a brief assessment as for the expectations of the Indian populace uh, mm -hmm. in this hung parliament. And I interviewed Franklin and most uh, CSO's leadership. Two issues came up. Mm. One, it could be effective if and only if there's less and less uh, uh, political influence on the minority. Two, it could fail if parliamentarians and the political parties use their numbers for expediency. Mm. So these were the two wider opinions uh, that we had. But 90% of the experts we interviewed said that it's good for democracy. Mm. That was the stand. But after given, two years, yes, before that, mm -hmm. the, the two issues. So, where has it placed so far? That, that's what I said. So, after, okay. after two, three years, mm -hmm. what do we see? Mm. As, as Franklin said, there has been ups and downs. They've tried. And let me say that most of the issues in parliamentary debate and discussion and consensus are done at a lobbying level, which is not public. Mm. So, yes, uh, there are issues that you and I are aware that have not come forth again, especially the Japan deal. Mm -hmm. did not come because the oppositions were against it and they labeled against it. There are other issues that you and I might not be aware but have been blocked or been remodeled to suit the inputs from the from minority. So, so the share, you know, uh, the, the share presence of the numbers, numbers. The, the fact that it's a hung, a hung parliament, has scarce, scarce the opposition and has improved comparing to the previous the, the, from the first to the seventh parliament mm. that issues will easily pass look at the Vodafone deal it just passed through because, mm. but the opposition was against mm. it but now you can see even if not all some major issues have been blocked or modeled modified mm. to see the opinion of it so I think the hang parliament is good but not to that there are issues. Mm. We are happy we saw Parliament launch a year-long activity to mark the 30th anniversary. We haven't had opportunity to see the calendar for the year. But I expect that they put in major activities on introspection, mm. looking into themselves and the work of parliaments. How far after the eight parliaments, the 30 years, where have we gone and what can we do? Mm. Do an analysis as to the challenges they've outlined here so that we can see improvements. And it's not only the work, the tax of Parliament. I told you that most of the pressure also comes from Parliament. And Honorable Ayaga was telling us, even their traditional leaders have power and influence in some of the decisions they take. So it's a holistic yeah. introspection that should be done in the country to help improve the work of Parliament. Mm. We, we don't have a math if Parliament fails. Mm. I see. Uh, I thank you so much for, for your time this morning. So so grateful that you were able to join us on this very important matter of uh, the 30 years of parliamentary democracy. Uh, my guests for this segment have been Mahama Yariga, Member of Parliament for Boku Central, Dr. Rashid Draman, Executive Director, Africa Center for Parliamentary Affairs, uh, Paul Abrampa, Mensa, Senior Programs Officer, CDD, and Alexander uh, Aban, former MP, uh, Gomoa West. Of course, Franklin Kujo, uh, a president of Imani Africa was on the panel as well, but Franklin remains for the next panel. We now we look at, we, we will take a short break. When we return, we will now look at the matter of the vaccine shortage, whether it should be a concern, um, a cause for concern. 
we do not have childhood vaccines, uh, that routine uh, uh, immunization, uh, uh, what we use for the routine immunization, BCG, for polio, for diphtheria. The state has run out of it, and it's been so since last year, in some cases February, but a lot of the people say it's been so since May, June. What are we doing as a people? How, do we, how did we get here? Why wasn't anything done about it? Is it that government did not have or does not have money to procure those vaccines? What would be the effect or the immediate effect on the future of our country, the future of the young ones or the ones being born? Very, very serious matter. We'll look at that when we return. And indeed, Dr. Ejewa Tete, a member of the Pediatric Society of Ghana, uh, Dr. Thomas Anaba, Executive Director, Africa Center for Health Policy Research, and of course, Franklin Kujo uh, will be my guest on that segment. Don't go away. You're welcome back to The Big Issue. Um, we are live um, on CityTube, YouTube. We are on 97.3, and of course, we are on CityTV. Uh, we have been looking at the matter of Parliament, 30 years, whether it's been effective, hung Parliament, what we can do to improve it. The next segment really talks about the important matter of the vaccine shortage. Uh, we had a week that we had run out of vaccines, and the situation had persisted since May, June, and in some cases, February. And of course, we learned about the six childhood killer diseases, diphtheria, whooping cough, poliomyelitis, etc. And so these vaccines help protect the children when they are born until, I mean, they grow and they are, they are not killed by these uh, diseases. The city now has been described as very to the extent that for, for, for months we have run out of vaccines. And when the news broke, Parliament now, you know, is hauled before its uh, health committee, the health minister. We want to ask, where was the health minister, like all the institutions of state in that arena? Where were they when we were running out of the vaccines? Was there no planning? What happened to the supply chain? Is it that we did not have money to acquire the vaccines, etc.? We will give you some answers today. But... Just to buy some bread, but there's widespread shortage of childhood vaccines used for routine immunization of babies from birth to at least 18 months. Vaccines for illnesses such as measles, polio, and tuberculosis have been in short supply in hospitals, a situation that has the potential to increase the vulnerability of children to the diseases and the, va the vaccines seek to protect them from. Some nursing mothers are worried the shortage of vaccines for if their children and increase their vulnerability to their diseases. Uh, Meanwhile, the Ghana Health Service has attributed a shortage of some of these vaccines to the depreciation of the city. Speaking earlier in the week, uh, the Director General of the Ghana Health Service said, that's Dr. Patrick Kuma Abouaji, says measures are, being, or measures are being put in place to ensure that we get the vaccines in no time. Let's look at this report and come back into the studio. Nursing mother tells City News last month due to the shortage across the country. So the Ghana Health Service says that measles, tuberculosis, polio and some other vaccines are supported. Now on today, they had a shortage and then we were asked to go to a nearest hospital or clinic to get it. But I tried polyclinic, Kanish polyclinic, so that's the one closer to us. I tried that place to sell. They also said they don't have it, so there's a shortage. 
Aside from polio, the Ghana Health Service has confirmed the shortage of BCG vaccine for tuberculosis and measles rubella. The confirmation is on the back of widespread reports about the shortage for over a month. These vaccines under the expanded program on immunization have been shown to be effective in preventing disease-specific morbidity and mortality. But the service has assured the vaccines will be available in the next two weeks. There are three key traditional vaccines that we have run out towards the end of the year. This is the OPD, the polio uh, vaccine. We have the BCG and then the, the measles rubella vaccine. We were supposed to cure in the third, fourth quarter of the year for 2023. And due to the currency situation, the amount of funds that was available in cities could not meet that. So orders are being made now, and we expect that within the next two weeks, we'll be able to, to catch up. We know that we have shortages across the country in all those uh, areas, but, uh, but that's the situation. So we are working with the UNICEF and our partners to ensure that within the next two weeks, we are able to bring in these three vaccines, all other vaccines. City News visited the Greater Accra Regional Hospital Ridge, Kanishi, Adabraka, and Kolebu Polyclinics. Even though managers of these facilities refuse to speak on the matter, some parents say they are forced to move from one health center to the other in search of these vaccines for their children. <laughs> Mm-hmm. When I gave birth, the person that they, they asked to give to my baby at birth, that's the BCG, I didn't get it at the facility that I gave birth to. So they asked me to visit other facilities. Maybe I can get it because there's shortage of it. Yes, I have to roam from facilities to facilities. So I went to uh, Shikura Community Hospital. I didn't get it. So they uh, equally um, directed me to Manprobi Polyclinic. Yes, and I went to Manprobi Polyclinic and I got some there. Uh, walk away. Any polyclinic, any Eshadai, any Iran clinic, almost a bin. Anything and then a bass and a barber tries, if you are many people are no mana, but I still normally say, Minquadis and the following months, Nakamasamba. The Health Committee of Parliament and the Pediatric Society of Ghana, among others, have also joined the calls on government to, as a matter of urgency, take all the necessary steps to procure these vaccines. However, these mothers lament the shortage will increase the vulnerability of children to the diseases the vaccines seek to protect them against, hence an immediate intervention from the government. Yeah. So you are told to go to some other clinics. Yeah for the vaccine and even to 
some of these clinics, but you have been told that there is still a shortage and they don't have the vaccines. Yeah, exactly. And as a mother with a five-month-old baby, how is this making you feel? Well, I'm not comfortable with it because I think that will have an effect on my baby, something of that sort. If it's all right, so you saw that report, uh, which tells the story on its own. So my guest, once again, Dr. Ejiwa Bonuedi, member of the Pediatric Society of Ghana, uh, Dr. Thomas Anaba, Executive Director, the African Center for Health Policy Research and Analysis, and Franklin Kujo. Doc, you're welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Yes, very interesting situation we have on our hands. How widespread um, is this shortage? Well, it's, it's, it's pretty widespread. Um, several regions in the country have reported shortages. Mm. Greater Accra, where we are, has reported a lot of shortages. We have many of our facilities who do not have one or another of the vaccines. Other regions like Eastern, Central, Northern, Upper East, Upper West, Bono, and many others have also reported shortages of one vaccine or another. The problem is that um, the shortage is not the same in all facilities. So, and that's why from the report you had mothers coming from one facility to the other, because some facilities have, for instance, OPV, but they do not have the BCG, and some facilities would have measles, but then would not have, for instance, the pentavalent or the pneumococcal vaccine. Mm -hmm. So those are the challenges that we are facing now. But I, I don't know how often this happens, but in, in your practice, have you seen such a shortage in the way you described it? Have you seen this before, or how, how close have we been to this situation before in the past? I've been practicing for probably 15, more than 15 years now, mm -hmm. And really, this is the first time I'm hearing of such widespread shortages. Mm. So we do have shortages from time to time. However, those are in very limited um, circumstances. And you would usually have to just move to one other facility, or within some days or weeks, it stabilizes. Mm. The problem this time is that it has gone over for several months. People started complaining sometime last year, we thought the situation would get better. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be getting any better. Mm. And that's where we are now. So, so what, what's, what's the concern really of, of doctors and the people who deal with uh, pediatric matters in the society? What, what's your concern about this problem? All right. So the EPI in Ghana started somewhere in the 80s. And we have had massive um, results from the EPI, which is the Expanded Program of Immunization. If you look at some diseases like measles, in 2000, mm. we had over 23,000 reported cases of measles in mm. Ghana. However, if you look at the year 2021, we had as few as 52 cases being reported. Mm. And these um, successes are being chalked because of immunization. Mm. We have, for instance, measles, again, you would realize that we have about 94% coverage of measles in Ghana. Mm. And that's very high. And because of these successes, that is how come our cases are low. Therefore, if our immunization numbers are going to go down, mm. our fear is that we are going to be having more and more of these um, illnesses coming back into, into the scene. 
for some of us in practice, we haven't, a lot of my colleagues have never seen a, a case of measles in their mm. practice. However, now we're being confronted with the situation more, and so more people are having the unfortunate encounter of seeing measles at first sight, and not just reading about them in textbooks and on the internet and so forth. So our main concern is that what would happen should this go on for a long time? Mm. What happens to our children? Remember, our children are our future leaders. So our goal is to speak for these children who unfortunately are the vulnerable in society. They do not have a voice of their own. And so we are here to just bring out the issues and to get um, government, civil society, everybody who is involved in um, the process of getting vaccines in Ghana mm. to be up and doing and to make this a situation of the past. Mm. In fact, this is not a situation we want to ever go back to. Mm. So, so in, in matters like this, I mean, as health practitioners, is there anything you can do or you just watch the situation to just unfold? What, what, what can be done from your side? So we started talking about this. We started engaging people as to what is going on. Mm. And that is why um, PSG is taking on this advocacy drive to bring out the issues that are occurring on the ground. Mm. We believe that everybody should know about it. Everybody should be informed. And together we should fight to make sure that this situation is rectified. Mm. So, so the, the vaccines are to protect you from getting the disease in the first place. So in cases where the child gets the disease, are we able to treat the disease then so that it's, it's, so that it's not as bad as it would have been if we did not have a treatment or a way of resolving that particular situation. Is, is that the case? Yeah, so a lot of these um, vaccine-preventable diseases are treatable. Mm. However, you may have complications arising even when treatment is given. Mm. And so, yes, um, the children may get the opportunity of receiving treatment, but what happens if, for instance, their parents do not receive, um, do not seek health care early enough? Mm -hmm. Then they may not only have complications, but they may actually die of some of these illnesses, which mm -hmm. could have been prevented in the first place. Mm -hmm. I see. Uh, let me speak to Franklin Kujo. Franklin, um, interesting situation we, we have here. What, what's your thinking around the situation? Do, do, we, do we know why we, we, we are here? Well, without a doubt, I think the Professor uh, Kumar Buaji did say that during the week when uh, Bernard interviewed him. And I think that the, the reason, obviously, is lack of money, uh, if, in, if let me put it crudely that way. And I think we need to, uh, I mean, that's, that's what it is, really. I mean, if there was enough money, if there was enough forex cover, I'm sure would have beaten this particular challenge. Um, so I'm not too sure about scenarios and planning. It had been planned, but certainly the money was simply not there, which makes it very interesting because, you know, we were, I think the president had promised setting up a national vaccine institute, hopefully with some $25 million seed, seed money. Um, those conversations are very critical and they must be had right now. But but particularly on this matter, I, I think we all know what really the challenge is, 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 is money. And, and, and that's why I think the affairs of a country, when it comes to economic management, must be taken quite seriously. So, I mean, apart from the professional stress that uh, the, the lady and uh, 
other professionals working within the healthcare sector are going through. Um, I guess we need to start fixing our economy. Uh, I mean, this this uh, this this a ramification of of the challenges we've had with our economy uh, lately, and so that's what it is really. I mean, I don't know how best to to, to describe it. But but is it not to say that we do not have money? That's why we we've run out of vaccines. When indeed we find money to do other things, what what does it say about uh, our uh, maybe it's planning, but prioritization of 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 our affairs as as a people? What does it say to 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 that? As you know, that this conversation can take us the whole day, and I'm I'm sure you 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 have referenced this in several of the big issue uh, big issue. The big issues that we had, right? And so we can conclude that conversation today when it comes to prioritizing what matters uh, to a nation. And of course, health is a critical one. Um, I do not want to sound like a broken record, but there are many examples of how we have not really uh, directed our affairs in terms of monetary investment to critical issues like healthcare. And so, um, the jury is out, really, that we've not really done well when it comes to prioritizing these matters. And it's, a, it's, it's really, it's, it's a worry. It's a great worry. So, so, right. so Doc, I mean, so in, in your circles, what has the discussion been really? Uh, government has said that they are working too hard to get in some stock. What has the discussion been in, in, your, in your circles? You know, that we sit and wait, or what can we be doing before it comes? You know, what, what really has been a discussion? So in our, in our circles, yes, we've been encouraging mothers not to, to give up because one thing we realize is that we've done, a lot has gone on over the years. Mothers are eager to go ahead and seek vaccines for their children. But one challenge we fear may, may come up with, that may come with this is mothers being, becoming despondent and giving up sending their children to centers for immunizations. So yes, we've continued to encourage our mothers to, to um, seek the vaccines mm. so their children can be protected. Beyond that, the Pediatric Society has also been engaging with other um, stakeholders to find out what the real situation is and to see what can be done. For now, the problem has already occurred, but we believe that it would not be enough for us to just solve these issues now if we do not prevent its reoccurrence in mm. future. And so that is our main focus that this should actually be a thing of the past. Governments should be encouraged to do what we call ring fence funding such that um, budgetary allocations for vaccines are actually protected no matter what other dire or pressing needs that the country has. The children should be secured in that light. And so those are some of the things that we've been speaking about. So ring fence funding, that, that appears quite interesting. But I, I think that the, the, from what we heard from uh, the Ghana Health Service, I mean, there's, the, it is due to the depreciation of the city. So the, the funds could be ring fenced, but if the city depreciates further, we may come back to this point again. What you're thinking around the, the setting up of the Vassan Institute, and I don't know if you've been following it, but what's your take on the progress so far, and how would that change the situation we, we, we are in currently? 
So, um, well, we believe that it may be, be of help. I'm not um, privy to all the discussions that have here. gone on, so I do not want to speak too much mm -hmm. to that. I see. So, how, how, what do the parents tell you? You know, that we live in a certain economic contest. Uh, people, parents will have to travel from one place to the other. Um, they spend money they don't have, you know, and there's no busing. They go somewhere else another day. But they, they, they need a busing for their kids. Is, is there a concern that because of the economic challenge as well and the lack of aid for money for parents to travel from place to place, getting the vaccines, parents will give up? and then not try to get the vaccines anymore, which will lead to difficulties. Is that a concern that the society or your professional colleagues have expressed? And how well have you articulated that to the authorities? And apart from the assurance, what else have they been doing to address it? So, you know, the vaccine rates have been increasing over the years. Initially, it was about 60%. We went up into the 70s and 80s. And now for most of the vaccines that are given in Ghana, we are in the 90s about 92 to 98, 99% um, vaccination coverage, which is impressive. And so we really do not want to go back on this. Most of the challenges that parents have, yes, is having to come from one facility to the other. And that's where, assuming communication was, was better, probably um, we could guide parents on where exactly to go or how often they should um, fa um, visit those facilities to be able to get the vaccines for their children. Mm. We as a society also want to encourage parents not to give up. Most of the vaccines are programmed such that they have the best results when they are given at certain particular times. Mm. But then the fact that you do not receive it at that time does not wane your your, your benefits completely and mm. therefore we encourage mothers that it's rather unfortunate that we have not gotten it now however they should not um, relent on their efforts to get these vaccines for their children the benefits which we have been having for now is because of herd immunity mm. so because over the years most of our children have been vaccinated it is one of the reasons why um, we probably are not seeing such massive outbreaks as yet However, if the situation should continue, then that would have been a challenge. We are glad that, however, the ministry has put in efforts to make sure that we see this as a situation of the past in the, in the, in the next um, weeks. And we are hoping that it would actually come to pass. Mm. What, what, what will you say is, or will you say that the uh, acquisition for vaccines for COVID and all the efforts that were put in to ensure that are successful, has had any effect on these other ones? Because people have said that because our attention was on COVID, we, we dropped the ball a bit when it came to these other things. Is that, um, is that, is, 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 is that true? And, and, and uh, is, that, is that a true reflection of what you think might have happened, that we focus on acquiring or getting vaccines for COVID and we uh, you know, forgot about these ones a bit? And this is what has brought us here. I do not think so. Mm. Um, I think that certain plans were put in place for COVID and EPI has been running this program for over 20 years. And so 
the systems are well in place. Your EPI will mean expanded, expanded program of immunization okay. that deals with the availability of vaccines. Mm. However, I guess the right authority to talk on this is the Ministry of Health mm, exactly. because they do the procurement of okay. the vaccines. All right. So this is a big issue. We are looking at the issue of the vaccine shortage and what uh, is being done to address it. The Pediatric Society of Ghana is not happy. They fear for the future of our children. And we are having a discussion with a member of that association or that society, uh, Dr. Ejewa Bonwedi and Franklin Kujo, and uh, we will soon have Dr. Thomas Anaba on the line to speak to. I uh, will take a short break, return, come back and conclude the discussion. Don't worry. Welcome back to the big issue. Um, we are looking at the short, shortage in, of vaccines across the country. Uh, in fact, a number of regions have reported that they do not have vaccines. According to the daily graphic, the, the shortage is very widespread. And uh, part of that report says that under the routine vaccina vaccination program, BCG, a vaccine for tuberculosis, uh, oral polio vaccine, measles rubella, meningitis and diphtheria, tetanus, uh, pertussis, which is the same as whooping cough, uh, you know, are administered. And the vaccines against polio, hepatitis B and hemophilus influenza type B, chest diseases that are particularly dangerous to babies are also among those administered. But the graphic says it's checks with health facilities in the capitals of Greater Accra, Western, Central, Upper West, Bono, Eastern and Upper East regions confirmed the situation and so it is quite a widespread situation and I have uh, Dr. Ejewa Bonedier who is a member of the uh, Pediatric Society of Ghana and uh, Franklin Kujo who are helping us um, understand and, and address uh, some of the issues. So, so, so Doc, you, you've been telling us about how widespread it is, you've been talking about you know what uh, you've been telling the parents etc. But the parents have to come to the facility for you to tell them that they shouldn't give up, they should keep checking every now and then, even though it comes to them at a cost. Is the society considering, uh, in this period of shortage, uh, aligning with any group or, 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 or institution to put out this information more so that parents, wherever they may be, will know that even if there is shortage, they should keep trying, they should keep doing ABC in order to keep their kids safe. Maybe they don't have to take their kids where there are a lot of people crowd. You know, is there a way, it may not be your job, by the end, it comes back to you because you are in the facilities. And is there a way you guys are thinking around this, or is there a way you can do this to get to the people out there? All right. So, like you have said, most of these mothers would bring their children to the vaccination centers to be vaccinated. So that's um, an easy way for us to reach them. Mm -hmm. However, beyond that, in our own um, little ways, on our own facility bases, some um, people have communication channels with their patients and so they are using those media to try and reach out to patients and encourage them to still push ahead and um, seek these vaccines for their children. Mm. The aim of pediatric society is on one hand to encourage parents not to give up on it but also to um, push um, government and other um, organizations that are responsible for getting the vaccines in the country to make sure that 
we get the vaccines. The children who are voiceless are vaccinated. So it's, it's, it's a push on, on both ends. Mm. I see. So um, what, what, what are the numbers currently? So what, I mean, we have a number of the diseases, tuberculosis, we have uh, measles, we have uh, whooping cough and a few others. Which disease are we recording more and more in recent times? All right, so we are relying on our surveillance to give us the, the figures. But we know that over the last um, few months in, in 2022, for instance, the latter part of 2022, the northern region had an outbreak of measles. And this was news. It was on um, a number of the radio stations. Some um, newspapers actually carried it. As, like I said previously, in 2021, only 51 52 cases of measles were recorded in, in Ghana. But by the end of 2022, for instance, about 120 cases, confirmed cases, have been reported in the northern region alone. So that tells you that the situation is not very easy. I mean, it may be quite severe in some, in some cases. In greater Accra region, we do not um, have the number of confirmed cases as of 2022. But we know that there have been a few um, sporadic um, reports of measles. The, the, the other thing is that when we look at a, a condition like measles, the data that we have shows that many of the children who were said to have confirmed measles were, not, were either not vaccinated mm. or do not know their vaccination status. In fact, we have only under 1% of the confirmed cases having had the two vaccines. Mm. So that points to the fact that the vaccines are doing a good job for us and we should promote them going on. And, and, and measles is contagious? Measles is contagious. Mm. So can a parent suffer or can a parent uh, get measles from a child? Does it occur that way or it only happens with children? So if, if the adult is immunosuppressed, mm. the adult may actually be able to get measles. Mm. It's passed through droplets, so mm. anybody is... is mm. I see. Franklin, maybe your, your final words on this. I mean, they, they are calling for uh, government to ring fence funding for vaccines like this. Uh, I don't know whether that is feasible or not in the current economic context we find ourselves in. What, what's your thinking? Well, why not? Um, if you look at the Auditor's, Gen Auditor General's report of the COVID-19 funds, the way it was uh, I mean, applied, um, we paid for some vaccines that have still not been delivered, right? And so we must learn lessons from that, really. And in important vaccines like this must be reinforced. And I agree entirely with the, with the doctor there that, look, these are critical healthcare needs that must be protected at all times. And so I agree entirely that we must prioritize this when it comes to our spending. Mm. Maybe, maybe someone should be taking a bill, some, a bill to Parliament to, to get that done. Uh, probably get one of the parliamentarians to sponsor a bill like that. It's very, it's very crucial. Mm. I, I see. Uh, interesting. Fabian, well, 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 thank you. So, um, what, what would be your final words um, to, to, to everybody, to parents, to the government, to practitioners, everybody who who matters in, in, this, uh, uh, in, this, in this matter. What would be your final words, words to them in respect of the shortage of the vaccines? My final words is that this has happened. This should never happen again. Our children are 
the vulnerable in society. Unfortunately, they do not have a voice of their own. When it came to haircuts, the pensioners could talk for themselves. But unfortunately, our children can't talk for themselves. So we want everybody to rally behind our children and speak for our children mm. such that this does not happen again in our nation. I see. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Jewa Bonudu, a member of the uh, Pediatric Society of Ghana. Franklin Kujo, thanks so much as always for being on the program. My name is Salam Adunu. Thanks so much for your time and company. See you again next week. Have a good afternoon.